Thank you for joining us here today on the very first episode of 2020, episode number 68. Today's podcast is brought to you by ACT Lighting. ACT is North America's leading distributor and manufacturer of entertainment technology products with award-winning brands including MA Lighting, Ayrton, Chainmaster, Luxibel, AC Power, Robert Juliet, ZachTrack, and MDG, as well as cable and interconnect solutions for virtually any audio, video, data, or power distribution need from Rapco Horizon, Proco, and Roadhog. The much-anticipated MA Lighting Grand MA3 software is here and available for download now. The new software features an entirely new phasers engine and dynamic looks. 3D selection arrangements, a built-in visualizer, and so much more. MA Lighting and the entire ACT team couldn't be more excited to see the thousands and thousands of downloads in just the first few weeks of availability. We can't wait to hear what you make with it and where the new software platform takes us all in years to come. ACT employs over 600 team members who are each dedicated to providing exemplary service and support and ensuring the show goes on by maintaining inventory and 24-7, 365 technical expertise in nine locations throughout the USA, Canada, and Mexico. For more information, visit actlighting.com. <laughs> First time hearing it of 2020. There you go. First uh, time for the big Gatto intro. Happy New Year. Yeah, you too. You know, I had somebody over the holidays tell me that I hate your intro song. I mean, I've, I've, heard, for, I've heard for a year from people who, like I remember Adam Vaderi coming up to me at, uh, I don't know, LDI or one of the shows, and he's jamming his, his air guitar, right, going, dun, 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 you know, making the whole song. And he's like, I love that tune. I never heard it before. And uh, so I get more of that. But somebody actually said, I love your podcast. I hate your intro music, but I just kind of fast forward past it. And Exactly. That's what fast forward is for. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's like recording a college football game and not watching it and just speeding through it. Yeah. Six seconds at a time. Yeah, you know? I guess. I watched a couple of, well, I kind of had in the background a couple of those games yesterday. The uh, the Oregon game was actually pretty fun. Awesome. Very, very close ending. I didn't watch the end of the other one, but um, but the Oregon game was pretty fun. I don't watch a lot of college football, so. it's It was super exciting, the Ohio State game. With yeah. Clemson, oh, my word. Yeah, yeah, I didn't watch it. Didn't watch it. I'm going to watch, uh, when does LSU play? Next week, I guess, right? Uh, I think it's the 13th is the national championship, so it's going to be oh. LSU and Clemson, which should be a squash match if, you know. Yeah, yeah. LSU's got a great team. Well, and hopefully it's hopefully it's a uh, preview of our new quarterback for the Dolphins, right? Exactly. <laughs> I doubt it. Heisman Trophy winner, so there you go. I right? think he might go above where we pick in fifth or something. So I think we, so. It's we, fifth. We might not get that opportunity, but uh, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what's his name? Fitzpatrick is our new quarterback of the future. <laughs> 
<laughs> if Brady can play till he's 50, maybe Fitzpatrick can too. I don't know. I was pretty impressed with the win on Sunday. So yeah, there you go. well, although, you know, you look at Brady and he's, uh, I'm sure it's going to be a controversial uh, statement, but he just doesn't look himself. And I say that knocking on my head would, you know, because, you know, Brady's going to come out and just be in top form this weekend in the playoffs Correct. and go and win another friggin' Super Bowl and piss us Correct. all off. I think he's so. on his second hand now for Super Bowl rings, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so. I think he's well into his, didn't he win second six hand. or seven? I don't know. There's that commercial that he has where he shows all of his rings. It's wild. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the so I guys, guess we should talk about some lighting. Huh? The guy's a stud for sure. <laughs> yeah. So episode 68. We are in, and we are about to approach our one-year anniversary. I think it's January 23rd was when we did our first episode, and uh, you weren't around, but over the holidays, I did episode 67, mm -hmm. which um, I was a loner. I did it all by myself, which was weird. No guests, no co-hosts, no nothing, and it actually was really well-received. I got lots of positive comments. It's been downloaded a ton. So I was surprised because, uh, you know, we didn't even attach a sponsor to it because I kind of felt bad. I thought it was just going to be a bit of a filler and nobody would listen. Um, but then, lo and behold, people listened and, and actually enjoyed it. So there you go. Maybe I don't need you, Henry, after there all. There you go. You know, put a mirror across the table and that way, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. If I did that, I might be scared. Um, but, uh, you know, with that said, I mean, obviously we're entering 2020. It's, it's an interesting time because I'm noticing, um, you know, it's almost like we ended the year in fear and we're beginning the year with sort of a positive kind of uplifting. Everybody seems to be, you know, optimistic, God forbid, which, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in this country, optimism <laughs> hasn't been a, a keyword as of late. Um, but I don't know, like I'm going to keep politics out of it. I, I'm not sure exactly what it is. I know that business has been good for most people. I think, uh, most families are doing better than they had in the past. And, and I think things are just generally good. I know for our companies, um, everything is pointed in a positive direction. We've added lots of new people. And, um, so you know, I, I don't know, like, I don't know if it's 2020, because it's like, you know, that round number kind of thing, you know, uh, somebody said the other day that it's the 20th anniversary of the millennium, which blew me away when they said that, because wow. that felt like yesterday. So um, yeah, I mean, just seems like positive stuff going on. And, and I know, in our industry, <clears throat> you know, just really happy times. Like everyone is up. Every business seems yeah. to be up. Every manufacturer's reporting record sales and, you know, great product launches and all that stuff. So it's pretty exciting. Yep. It sure is. You know, are you um, feeling that or are you seeing people like, I mean, other than the parking lots at the malls and stuff, which I cannot believe how crazy and rude people are in parking lots. Like I'm a pretty calm guy when it comes to that stuff, but people were just flooring me to a point where I wanted to put my car and park and jump out and just go, what the hell are you thinking? You know, yeah, it's just, you know, people are out there spending boatloads of money. They're confident about, you know, where we are in the world. Obviously it showed up in touring you yeah. know, in 2019. Yeah. You know, a lot of festival news, um, you know, which I guess we'll cover here in, in, a, in a minute or two or we can. Actually yeah. Well, I actually, I wanted to mention something to you because you brought up the, the tour, the stadium tour, a mm -hmm. couple of times in the past few episodes. And um, this morning, I actually listened to Eddie Trunk's podcast with um, uh, 
uh, what's his name, Joe Elliott from Def Leppard. And, you know, just his take on the whole stadium thing. And he's he's kind of having this whole pinch me moment because he's like, you know, we're used to selling out shows, but in much smaller venues and in a lot more time. And mm-hmm. so he said, like, we'll sell out a show where somebody comes up to us 20 minutes before the show and say, hey, they just sold out, you know, but these are selling out in six months in advance and their yeah. stadiums. So he says, we're we're shocked. We're blown away. We're proud we're we're you know whatever you want to call it honored and uh so they're very very humble about this whole thing and they've got no attitude about who plays last um supposedly it's going to flip-flop between them and motley crew and uh he said you know if it's someone's favorite town or they've got relatives in that town and they want to be the headliner that night or whatever no problem and uh but i'm guessing on the other side of it it's not going to go as smoothly and so one of the things Joe Elliott was mentioning, and I think actually uh, Eddie Trunk brought it up, was the sort of infighting with the other bands and the fact that Def Leppard has always been such a cohesive unit and very family and friendly and calm and not a lot of infighting. But when you look at Motley Crue and Poison, they've just got a history of trying to kill each other. And... Um, so Eddie Trunk asked him, are you expecting to play referee on this tour? And he said, well, I certainly hope not. You know, we're just going to do our thing and hopefully they'll all figure out how to get along with each other and, and it won't be a big deal. So Separate dressing rooms, I suppose. <laughs> but it'll be an interesting <laughs> dynamic. I wonder, you know, it, it kind of leads me to question, is it possible that they don't finish the entire thing? And I know there's going to be enough greed involved that people aren't going to blow it up. You know, but at the same time, I mean, can, you know, all of Motley Crue, can Tommy and and Vince get along for, you know, these shows with the amount of ego that's going to be involved attached to these things? And, you know, same goes for Poison, even though they're not a headliner on it. I think there's a huge attraction to, you know, I guess us old farts, us geezers um, going and seeing shows like that, you know, because I went, uh, the last show I saw that was similar to that was the Tampa Bay Ice Palace where... Let's see, the lineup was uh, Dawkin, Whitesnake, David Lee Roth, and ACDC, I think all in one shot, right? Huh, yeah. And it, they jammed it. And that was a, whew, that was a number, number of years but ago. But it's weird right? because I didn't expect this to do so well, to be honest with you. I thought Motley Crue fans were going to be pissed off. And also like Rocklahoma and a lot of those shows like that have kind of died out. It seems like you know, 80s rock is on a lull again, you know? And um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised. And, and, you know, you said geezers like us have interest in, in seeing this stuff. Personally, I don't. I, I have, you know, I might go if, if, you know, someone attached to the tour bugs me to go see it or to hang out or whatever. But other than that, you won't see me anywhere near any of those stadiums during that know. tour. I don't know. I'm feeling nostalgic. I think I'm Are you? Go. Oh, yeah. my goodness. So Good I think you. they have it at the Citrus Bowl here. So that's that's kind of interesting. Well, you can report back because <clears throat> I won't be there. So there you go. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting what we're talking about uh, mega festivals because there was an article about Australia on Polestar, you know, today about, you know, how like there was a bunch of niche festivals and a bunch of these promoters had called the end or the death of the me- the mega festival. And it was just not true. So, you know, the 100,000 people plus, the 60,000 people plus festivals, uh, like all the mega festivals, right, are just doing great. And yeah. uh, 
you know, ticket sales are still strong. So, you know, that was, uh, that's kind of interesting. So that kind of supports really what's going on with uh, the poison tour. Right. And, uh, yeah, you know, interestingly, funny, you you call it the poison tour (laughs) when they're on the undercard of this fight. Can you tell who my favorite band was in that? that Yeah, I know, which blows me away, which blows (laughs) me away. It's one area we definitely don't see eye to eye. So, so, you know, um, strongest year ever, I guess, for festivals in Europe, it was, this is like a big thing, except for Switzerland, believe it or not, that uh, they actually had so many promoters and so many people who come in to festivals that I guess the population of the country couldn't pay for all the tickets. So they saw a slight downtick just from a, just a massive uh, amount of festivals that there were out there. But Hmm. Everything that I'm reading for, you know, people want to go out, they have disposable income and they want to go to see these shows. So yeah, there you go. Right. Well, I mean, it, it, it just seems to be like a bigger event that, that people get excited about perhaps, you know, mm-hmm. cause there's a lot more bands or there's a lot more people or it's just a bigger deal. You know, the whole Woodstock kind of mentality or whatever. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, I'm glad it's alive and well because it supports our industry, obviously, and and that's a great thing. You know, it's frightening when you really think about it. You know, we talk about Woodstock like it was just yesterday, but the people that attended those things are in their 80s right now. Yeah, that's crazy. 82 years old. Well, the people who played there are in their 80s. The the bands, the performers, those who are still around anyways. I wonder how many of them are still driving around in Beatle buses following tours. Funny. Yeah, that's (laughs) funny. Yeah, so another thing I wanted to mention was, um, uh, again, over the holidays, well, especially New Year's, the drone shows. And, you know, we had Nils on talking what's uh, Verge Aero is his company. Um, Honestly, when when Nils first started talking to us, like at LDI and stuff, I, I thought like he was one of very few companies that were doing this kind of thing. I didn't realize it was so huge. And so somebody sent me a Twitter feed or something of um, drone shows replacing fireworks shows this New Year's. And so Mm -hmm. I started digging into that a little bit and went and started watching YouTube videos and stuff. And I come to find it's a big deal. I mean, there's a lot of companies doing this, um, especially in Asia where, you know, they're doing shows with several thousand drones in them like we're not talking a few hundred like we're doing here several thousand drones and you know the singapore one the shanghai one were both incredible if you haven't seen them go look at those videos um there's one somewhere in europe which i didn't get enough time to review it prior to uh jumping on with you this morning but i was looking at one in europe that was pretty pretty incredible as well and so that's you know that's a pretty big deal and some of them are just doing a show in the sky and other ones are actually mimicking fireworks already and the explosion and the, you know, even the, the sort of bead of light going up and then the explosion. And so that's kind of a cool thing. I wonder if they're actually going to, you know, attach sound to it and have big loud bangs and booms and stuff that go along with it. But here in, uh, in Wellington, where I live, which for those who don't know, which is probably 99.9% of the people listening, Wellington is a horse place. Uh, they call it the cold weather polo capital of the world. And it's not just polo, it's polo, equestrian, jumping, dressage, all of that stuff. 
And um, so you have a lot of really wealthy people here whose kids are into horses, uh, Bruce Springsteen and Bloomberg and Bill Gates has a place here. And so there's a big thing going on about completely banning fireworks in, in the village of Wellington or the city or town of Wellington. Right. Um, and so someone sent me a message board where people were basically arguing about it online um, yesterday, I think it was. And uh, people are really pissed off about this. Like people are very, you know, fireworks are the current, uh, you know, gun control debate or whatever that's going on. Uh, people want fireworks gone and they're basically saying it's harming our horses and it's scaring our horses and all of those things. I mean, so do thunderstorms. So what are we going to do about that one? I'm not sure, but uh, okay. So maybe it's a real problem. I'm not trying to take sides on it, but I grew up with fireworks. I'd hate to see that they're completely banned and gone, but, um, yeah, I mean, drones certainly play into that. I mean, I'd like to be a fly on the wall. You know, Zamb uh, Zambelli fireworks are the the largest, I guess, most popular fireworks company. I'm wondering if they're sitting there with their beginning of the year meetings, sitting there going, wow, there were a lot of drone shows over New Year's Eve. Yeah. Maybe this is something that we should look at. Because I think every fireworks company, uh, that's got to be on their mind. Right? My guess is they're probably still in denial. You know, sort of like um, Metallica with the whole Napster thing and the record companies when iTunes was coming in, just brushing it off. Ah, this will never take off, you know? So that would be my guess is that right now they're probably not taking it too seriously, but as it starts to impact their revenue and they see their revenue going flat while, you know, there's hundreds of these drone shows popping up all over the place. And like we've talked about before, you know, the backyard drone show kit kind yeah. of a approach to it, you know, where the average consumer has access to a drone show instead of a fireworks show. Well, I mean, you're already controlling, you know, drones from your iPhone, right? Obviously there's apps for it and things like that. So, you know, I would imagine that somewhere in this world, they are now coding a, a multiple drone thing, you know, from your iPhone. Where yeah. You'll fly eight or 12 drones around. I think it, it's inevitable that that software, the control software that coordinates all those shows becomes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Oh, right? I can totally so, see it. I can totally you know? see you importing an image and then just basically, you know, attaching drones to that image yeah. and then moving it or doing different things to animate that image and then hit send and boom, it gets sent to the drones and they take off and go up and do it. Yeah. Um, you know, we're probably within five years of that for sure. Um, yeah. so, and you know, the drone technology keeps getting better and prices keep going down. So I'm sorry, Nils, that we're having this conversation. I mean, we are bringing, we are bringing, uh, you know, more attention to the drone shows, but the problem is I, I, and I think we even discussed it on the call. It's going to inevitably go down market. Uh, so it's starting, you know, with that Intel crowd and it's going to keep going further down market mm -hmm. as it grows, as it scales, it's going to need to. Um, yeah. and look at fireworks have done the same thing. So, I mean, fireworks companies, this is sort of the second big disruption to fireworks companies. Cause when it went to Chinese suppliers and all these States sort of relaxed their laws on how big fireworks could be. And now you can buy these kits like at a gas station <laughs> parking lot that you're just sitting there going, holy shit. You know, I can't believe what's going on in my backyard right now. Like big stuff. Have you seen some of these kits? 
like I just throw it all in the. I just buy a big box of whatever and then throw it in the barbecue and watch it all off oh, at one time. That's <laughs> funny. My, my neighbors are you're that guy. Mortars. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's wild though. I mean, I I'm blown away. Like you can buy these finale packages that you just light one fuse and it just keeps going for like 10, 15 minutes. Wow, you know? Yeah. Anyways, kind of wild. Yeah. So I guess in the world of product news, not a ton of stuff out there, but I thought it was interesting. And I this is I guess an answer to a question that I had had in my mind. When is you know with LED fixtures, when is there too much light coming out of them? And you know. I personally use in the house here low intensity LEDs because, you know, basically they're just getting too damn bright. So, you know, American DJ, they have uh, what are called the modern LED parts, which is mod, M O D, and then a small urn there. So I guess that's another pronunciation thing we're going to have to ask uh, Loader about. Oh, boy. But, um, you know, what they've done is basically is they've scaled back now the size of the LEDs in fixtures. So there's an RGBW fixture here, but there's uh, seven, eight watt emitters. So they're no longer 15 and 16 watts a piece. Um, they're designed for more subtle lighting, churches and uh, subtle up lighting, lounges, stuff like that, to where it's just not so screamingly bright. Interesting. So, uh, I don't know that that's a trend because I think the trend is still how to milk more light out the front of that that well, you know, lens. I mean, you, know? you, you got to think you're sitting in a dark space, or you don't want the the LED to be the attention right of that. And it was kind of funny. Like uh, I lit some statues in 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 my church with some of those uh, really really bright LED spots, and the priest walked in and he goes, "It's taking attention away from me." So the statues are on the left and right, and he goes, "Hey, can you dim those back a little bit?" It was just kind of wild because it it did stand out that much you know yeah. so yeah it was, it was uh you know well a lot wild a lot to do with color temperature too because i know leds have taken a beating you know on in commercial and residential applications oh they're just you know they're too bright they're too white well mm -hmm. you're buying the wrong leds and and i think education is a big part of this and and stuff where you know, people understand that you don't have to buy just because they have 5,000 Kelvin LED bulbs in Home Depot. That shouldn't be what you're using. You should still keep using 2700, which you've been accustomed to, you know, yeah. unless you really do want to increase to a cooler color temperature or whatever. But anyways, too geeky. Yeah, there you go for sure. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, Ultratech, uh, introduced a, a new low fog generator. So this is this is going to replace their ever popular LSG low smoke generator Mark II. These things are really popular with touring and everything else. So they kind of reduced the size of the package a little bit. They increased the output. So, uh, you know, I guess I'm not sure if it's going to tour in a road case yet, but it um, it looks pretty impressive. So, uh, you know, and every time you go to sell one of these those things on the gear source website, it's out on a rental. So those things are incredibly you know popular. And, yeah. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, you know, Novastar, again, you know, the trend now towards increased resolution, again, with uh, with processing on video walls. So, you know, 4K processing, 4K sending, right? So you're going to see now the next, I guess, evolution in 2020 of just ultra, ultra high definition LED displays as we start to shrink into 1.9. Pretty soon, all the pixels will be touching, and then you'll just be hanging a television in the room. I guess. Yeah, we're getting but, close. Um, yeah, but you know, some of the images that you know you're seeing on on these screens now, your eye perceives them as like, wow, that's a really uh, 
really, really crisp picture. So I'm sure there's going to be some nutty stuff at Infocom this year where they're going to be displaying this and you're just going to watch up and think you can just stand in, in the, the image itself. Right. Yeah. Sort of like that crystal vision. Thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's kind of it on the, on the product news, really not a, not a ton of stuff. There were some software releases. Obviously we'll be talking about, you know, the, the MA software release coming up here. Um, yeah, it's big. I, I heard, uh, and you know, I don't want to, uh, get in the way of Glenn's big announcements that he's probably going to make when we talk to him today. But mm-hmm. I've heard in the tens of thousands of downloads, um, on the new software release, Sure. So, you know, tens of thousands. This is a small industry we're in. That's a lot of friggin' downloads. And uh, so, you know, obviously, I think they have, like, their new updated PC version of it. So it doesn't mean everybody has an MA3, you know, full-blown console. Um, some of these are just being operated on a on a computer with a... Yeah, virtual environment. Well, I mean, when we were talking to Steve Owens, uh, I think it was in the pre-podcast that I did with him. He goes, you know, I'm just dying to get my hands on this software because, you know, this is now the next evolution for me. Uh, I know it's going to be, you know, industry standard relatively quickly, and I just want to get my hands on it. So I would imagine a lot of LDs are using using visualizers and things like that to... Uh, to learn the the platform as they are delivering the back order of the consoles. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Kind of cool. Um, you know, I guess kind of lastly, I thought, uh, live design, uh, did an interesting article called 31 days of plots. And of course, you know, on day 31 is the lighting plot for, you know, new year's rock and Eve, which is on ABC, but it's always kind of cool in my mind to be able to see, uh, an event, a show, watch it. And then kind of as a lighting geek, go, you know, expand the plots, see them online and say, wow, okay, that's how they did that. Or that's how they did those effects. Or this is how they located the lighting and yeah. this type of event. So did you watch New Year's Rock and Eve? I didn't. I didn't. I watched the inside of my eyeballs for oh, New Year's Eve. Okay. So, um, yeah, I actually, I watched parts of it and uh, I saw um, Post Malone, <clears throat> which mm-hmm. I try to watch Post Malone whenever he pops up so that I can pretend to my kid that I know what I'm talking about when it comes to his... <laughs> his music, you know, yeah. but I got to be honest, the guy looked like he was wasted out of his brains. Like his, his eyes were slits. They were barely even open. And, uh, so I don't know if he was cold or, or what he was, but, uh, you know, he's, he's an interesting guy. He's obviously made a lot of money and done very well for himself and does some pretty cool stuff too. But, yeah. uh, but he was wasted. So anyways, just thought I'd mention that. So we do have Glenn waiting for us now, and I am very much looking forward to talking with, uh, with Glenn. Um, for those who don't know, Glenn, of course, is the, I believe, managing director now for MA Lighting, MA Lighting. Yes. and therefore is going to have a lot of insight for us on what's going on at MA. But I also want to talk to Glenn. You know, he's had a pretty lengthy career in distribution, in sales. Mm-hmm. Um, he was involved very early on with getting the hog out there. So he's another one of these guys who sort of hit multiple times on this console thing. Keeps riding, you know, new waves and, and making his way to the top again. He was also with AC with the uh, uh, the Jan stuff, Jan's I think, consoles, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. So you know, just keeps landing on his feet and, and doing really well. And he's a great guy. He's a great sales guy. He's a fixture at trade shows. So um, <laughs> he'll be an interesting guy to talk to. So let's go ahead and grab him. Well, you, in that case, I'll turn myself off. Hold on. I can't be, I'm, I'm is, here. So sorry. 
There you oh, go. Hang on. I'll, t- I'll turn mine on <laughs> because we all know I'm the most beautiful one of oh, them all. Go. Oh, wow. You look just like a DJ. Look at you. He's the one that shaved this morning. <laughs> I didn't. So, come on, I that's... didn't shave. No exactly. shave going on. No shave. And you two both go to the same hairdresser, I see. So Exactly. Leave it, leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll it's leave time it for there. a trim because I'm starting to look like fresh sprouting grass. You know, <laughs> I looked at myself in the mirror this morning. So, I'm like, oh. so we can actually shut our video off now and just talk like uh, we know, know what we're talking about. We were actually just talking about you, Glenn, oh. on the uh, little pre- intro thing that we did we were talking Mm -hmm. a bit about uh ma which we'll get to later on in in the discussion obviously but um and just how wildly successful the uh the launch of the new software has been so we want to talk a whole bunch about that but uh first of all Mm -hmm. ladies and gentlemen drum roll roll. we have glenn (laughs) o'donohue with us yeah and so Glenn, you're a guy who I think in Europe is known by absolutely everyone. And in the U.S., um, I think you're fairly well known due to some some runs that you had with uh, with AC Lighting and with the whole hog and with, you know, just different things that you've done over here. You actually lived over here for a while, too, I think, didn't you? Yeah, I did in Boston for a couple yeah. of years. Yes, yeah. I loved it there. Had a yeah. good time. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I want to talk a bit about that. But, um, you know, I've known you for many years, primarily due to just my work at manufacturing companies and just getting to know you at trade shows. And we tend to hang out in the same CD joints at the end of the day and uh, <laughs> with the same CD individuals. Yeah. Yeah. Was yeah. it Trackerman? Years and years ago, Trackerman, you, yeah, years that's and years ago. And, yeah, with the Martin distributor at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I spent a number of years there, and I think that's where I got to know you first. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And uh, Back in the uh, Hog One and Hog Two days, yes. Exactly, exactly. So I I did a little bit of research on you, and just trying to figure out how you got into the business and stuff. And it's it's you know it's another interesting story, and we talk about this quite often on this podcast because generally especially you know in the 70s 80s uh, and even 90s I think people fell into this business more than they actually went to school to get into this business Mm, you know yeah yeah, there weren't a lot of college degrees for you know hanging out in bars with geezers getting drunk at four o'clock in the morning trying to sell them a console or whatever right so you just kind of learned that on your own along the way. And, uh, and yeah, but it takes a lot of practice. I got to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. It's probably the hardest part of the job. It's, it's the part, like, as I hired salespeople, you know, one of the things like they'd come in and well, I've had this in sales and I've done this in sales and I've done, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, but how are you once, you know, you get after midnight, like how's, how's your, how do you do there? You know, are you doing, are you pretty good at between 12 and 3 a.m.? That's why and, these uh, days I run away. I, as soon as the the last award's given at these ceremonies, I sneak out the back and uh, don't yeah. hang around for that. Yeah, I, I don't. Think, I think everyone's so off their face. They don't remember whether you were there or not, really. It's totally true. And it's the same stories and it's the same individuals, you know, especially like the, you know, I used to love going to the round bar at the Hard Rock. And... <laughs> I haven't been there in years. I couldn't, like somebody told me this year, 
oh, it's so much, it, it's not as good as it was when the VL5s were there. And I'm like, they're gone? <laughs> and they've been <laughs> gone for years, apparently. So no, I've not been in that bar for a few years. Yeah, and, me uh, neither. I swear, nobody, nobody knows or cares, honestly. They really don't. They I mean, don't. The real business isn't done there these days. It's as it used to be. But, uh, yeah. You know, but it is a great place to hang out and, and meet your mates again. But, well, so. and a lot of times nowadays, it's funny that we mentioned this because the real business isn't done there, but the real business a lot of times isn't even done with the people that are there. You know, so a lot of those people have either sold their companies to someone else and now they're just employees or, you know, whatever. I mean, it's just it. the business is managed more in boardrooms than in uh, bar rooms now, I guess. Right. Is. Yeah, I don't like that. It's a real shame. That was that was one of the things I used to love about the industry. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, the people I grew up with are now running companies. So, yeah. you know, we, we become friends in that regard. But honestly, the, the connection doesn't tend to count for much these days where you could rely on that. Now it's, it's totally very true. much very much you've got to have a compelling business case every step of the way it's all a bit grown up well, unfortunately that's a double-edged sword though because you know quite often in the past i felt like i had a pretty compelling either product or opportunity or whatever but because you didn't have the right connection you could never get it across and so you know it, it it's i think it's a double-edged sword you know because i love taking care of people and then having those people take care of me, the networking, the partnerships that we create in this industry, sometimes at a bar at three o'clock in the morning. Mm. But, but I also like doing real business. And, um, so I, it's a bit of a double-edged sword for me. You know, I do miss the old days, but I also kind of appreciate the way it's being done today too. Yeah. My liver doesn't miss the old days. That's for sure. Oh my God. <laughs> well, and just, you know, the nine or eight o'clock sales meeting before the trade show when, you know, everyone's got sunglasses on and stuff. You know? <laughs> I just remember it way too well, way too well. Isn't the, that the truth? The yeah, worst for me was the, the test, wasn't it? So if you could oh. turn up on time, it didn't really matter how, how shit faced you got or how late you got to bed. As totally long as you could true. turn up on time and not stink too much. You were okay. Totally or if true. you even got to bed the night before, how many yeah. times have you just gone straight onto the floor, right? Well, I can't <laughs> recall yeah, there, ever there doing that pan but I, uh, maybe not for this but yeah, yeah. Oh i don't know that i ever did that i gotta be honest i, I maybe there was a time but i certainly don't remember it <laughs> for good reason i guess right so <laughs> glenn where, where did you grow up um in in the uk uh, just outside london in a place called radlett and uh it's near boreham wood near elstree studios in fact which was uh, was my first introduction to the industry cool but, um, yeah and how did that happen how how did you get introduced to the industry well, um, unlike most of the people you've had here, I'm not a failed musician or a failed DJ. I'm, I'm, I'm a failed mechanic, a car mechanic. And uh, I, I, I got fired in my apprenticeship for uh, leaving. First of all, it was a sump plug loose. And so the oil, the car went down the road and the oil drained out, <laughs> which wasn't too impressive. And then, and then the final thing that really did it, the final nail in my uh, engineering coffin was was when I left some wheel nuts loose on a car. So, oh, um, Jesus. Yeah, so, so, yeah, that wasn't too impressive. You, you so, really so weren't cut out into, for being a mechanic, yeah, I guess. Yeah, huh? yeah, I really wasn't. I mean, I love the engineering side, and I do today, but uh, I guess the, the the detail was not was not what I was about at the time, uh, yeah. you know, being a, a fresh-faced 20-year-old lad. I mean, I left school at 16, so I guess it was 18. I did two years of an apprenticeship. Yeah. Yeah. And then I got into uh, into electrical side of things. So, <laughs> so, yeah. so what you're telling me though is that it didn't work out in BMW, but it would have worked out for Land Rover. 
Was that what? It was? <laughs> maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe that would have been fine. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. just I had to throw that in there. Yeah, Land Rovers work great with no oil in them. <laughs> I guess. They seem to seem to plod along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then uh, I, I, and I got into uh, into working for electrical wholesaler, which is where I learned the the business of of you know, well, the doing business, the buying and the selling, and, and having on stock and that side of things, and. And then uh, I did that for a few years. Eventually got a bit disillusioned and, and decided, as a good friend of mine, strangely down a pub that was um, into films. And, uh, and, and with my connection with electrical wholesale and with lighting, I thought, well, you know, there's films. You need lighting in films. And, and I saw this job advertised in a shop window, literally in a shop window, um, for, uh, for working as a lighting guy in, in the gate studios. And I... I, I went into the shop and managed to get myself an interview and turned up expecting, you know, the glamour of, uh, of something incredible, thinking I was going to go and do lighting on films with all my extensive sort of three or four years knowledge of selling plugs. And um, it turns out it was nothing to do with lighting whatsoever. It was in the gate studios, which had been converted into a spray booth for cinema screens. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and uh, I sat down for an interview with, with a company called Hall Stage Equipment and... Um, and, and who made pulley systems and uh, raise and lower sets for theatres and curtain tracks. And I sat there waiting for the interview, looking through their brochure and thought, oh, no, I need to get out of here. This is not going to be good. You know, I'm trying to figure my way out so I didn't have to be in the room and go through the interview. It was just a complete waste of my time. But then just as I was about to get up and leave, the guy came out and said, oh, yeah, we're ready for you now. And I went in and, and it was actually, I was blown away by how interesting it was. So that was um, that was my first sort of, fledgling step into the industry and um doing sort of buying and selling no manufacturing and, and buying the components of so the steel and so on and um and uh getting involved with manufacturing curtain track so you, lower sets safety curtains that sort of thing you were this. pretty much straight into a desk job though right like not sweeping yeah. the warehouse and stuff no 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 i was definitely yeah, i was yeah, absolutely as a desk job and uh, oh cool and, was, and it was a me was too a great by the job. way and I, one of my claim to fames is i i uh, i used because of my engineering background um i uh, i designed a curtain track system that up until they went bust about two or three years ago they were still making up until that day so wow. uh, yeah, that was pretty cool i heard a funny story or i read it i can't remember where i found this story but something about you sleeping on a stage in a in a monastery oh my god yeah Oh wow! What, what was that about? Yeah. Uh, wow! Yeah, I find out was, things, Glenn. You yeah, have to you watch really out. do. That's impressive. So yeah. yeah, well, that was when I worked for a company um, in in Oxford. Oh dear, Paul Fowler. Um, he, he was a distributor. Lancelin Lighting were a distributor for for the engineering company I was working for, Hall Stage Equipment. Yeah, and um, so and this was they later. Me a job there. Even now, we 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 were doing theater installs, but they, that's where I first got introduced to lighting. Oh. And uh, so I went there to, to look after their engineering side and doing the curtain track installs and things like that, you know, we're sort of managing that side of it. And then I discovered lighting because they did lighting as well and audio, but that never really interested me much. Um, but uh, to, comp to, to sort of uh, complement our wages, we figured this little scam whereby we could, we could do the selling during the daytime. So we'd go out and visit schools and colleges, universities, theaters, and uh, measure up for new curtains or whatever it was they needed. And then we would give them a quotation for supplying all the equipment and also the installation. And then Paul and myself would arrange, very convenient to them, if it was a school hall or something like that, doing the work in weekends and evenings, which meant we could effectively do our day jobs and then go off and, uh, and do that at night. And um, one time over Christmas, uh, we ended up doing this 
this install of, of seating, in fact, um, new seating in, in, a, in a monastery. And, um, and we, we decided to really hammer it through because I don't know whether it was, was we close for Christmas. And um, so we had, I think we decided to work through the night so we could get back probably on Christmas Eve or something like that. Yeah. And we could absolutely pound the job out. And we got, we worked through till, I don't know, about midnight or so. And then we decided, okay, we got our sleeping bags out of the van and we went there and tried to find somewhere to sleep. And you look for a drape store or somewhere, but there was nowhere. <laughs> so we just, we, we just bedded down on the stage. Wow. And then early in the morning, like, you know, four o'clock or something like that. <laughs> we, I, I, I know this story, myself. so I'm laughing right here with you. I can't remember if it was myself or, or, or Paul, but one of us was screamed and there was this, this cloaked figure holding, you know, <laughs> over the top of us. Like, oh my God, oh my God. But it just turns out it was one of the, one of the monks had come along to, uh, you know, let us know that there was breakfast in the monastery if we wanted it. But, uh, oh my God, absolutely. You thought you were being taken. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. It was the guy holding his sickle. Right? Yeah, time and, to and go. It was the weirdest thing because they had their own, you know, they had their own, um, this monastery had their own private graveyard. Oh, and Jesus. only monks were there and they all had black crosses. And, and, and it was a real, real spooky place. I mean, yeah. really, seriously. Sounds spooky. like it. That's a great story, though. God, God knows how you found out about that. Yeah. So did you have to do the installation? I've got more. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Well, we did the... the installation and we were home, I think. You know, we, we so from like four or five o'clock in the morning, we carried on with the installation, got the hell out of there. Yeah, it was it was awful. <laughs> did you have to do the installation and complete and utter silence? <laughs> that wasn't that bad. Yeah. <laughs> Walk around going oh, home. We were allowed to make the noise. They weren't. Yeah. There you go. That's funny. So, <laughs> so how did you, uh, I mean, eventually you found your way into, uh, what was the first major break? Was it AC lighting or? Yeah, something? pretty much. I, I remember, um, I remember at Lancelin, I got more and more interested in the lighting side of things. And then, uh, and then, uh, I, uh, yeah, AC offered me a job. David Leggett offered me a job. I think actually Phil Capstick offered me a job there and I went along to them. I was, I don't know, one of the first 10 employees there. But, um, so that was in the eighties, right? 200. It was great. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I guess it would have been late eighties somewhere around there. I don't, yeah. I can't really remember. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And, and AC uh, lighting and at that time, time there. what were they at that time? They were a distributor of, of everything. They were a, a, a sort of a mini supermarket. They were, they were a Tomcat distributor. They were, um, you know, lamp wholesaler. They were doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, I say there was only, I was one of the first 10 employees, so we weren't that big. We operated out of a little unit out of um, High Wycombe. But, you know, it was definitely going places. The determination of of Phil, as I mentioned, Nick Tolkien and, and David Leggett, the owner, were, was just incredible. And they opened my eyes to to business in general. They, they, were, they were just so dedicated and worked so hard. It was incredible. So did they give you a list? Like, did they give you a territory or a region or a list of, of accounts that were yours or were you supposed to just go out and develop business? Well, I didn't really have to develop it. I mean, we just, you know, we, there wasn't the many people. It was us and Cerebrum doing what we did. All we had to do was look after the people really. And uh, my forte became, bless them, they're lovely, lovely guys and work crazy hard, but they didn't really understand the products very well. So, yeah my forte came that I understood the product. So I'd go out and do a lot of the demos because no one else was really doing them. So we, uh, we, we had the Jans distribution at the time. And so I, I took a particular shine to that and that became my thing. So I was the guy going out doing the demos for Jans and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to get them on shows and, and stuff. I guess I've always had a, a thing with consoles. And, yeah. Um, 
yeah, that's how we started. And, and <laughs> we, we were the distributor of Suma moving lights. Do you remember that? I do remember Suma. Suma, Steve yeah. Harper, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah First, the uh, Suma sort of star. Head, DMX moving head. Thing. Right. Yeah, I remember those. I, I don't think it had DMX right to the head, but it had some sort of repeater box thing that, that you would plug into. And, uh, I thought that they wound up in a lawsuit with Verilite over that product. I, they probably did. Yeah, I don't know. Because it didn't last very long, even though it was a very, uh, you know, Steve Harper was an amazing engineer. He did the, the Harper laser, which was the predecessor to the Viper system. And then, of course, the... Suma heads, right? Suma Technologies, right? Yeah. Yeah, and they were good. You know, they did most things. They were they were pretty cool. I oh, it just reminded me of something else. I I um I made a few notes before I Uh-oh. picked up the phone. No, no, no. I not just, not just, a like, prepared guest. No, no, we not don't at all, like those. No, I just didn't want to get caught out. I thought <laughs> I should make and Suma was one of the things on there, and then there were Foss. Do you remember Foss? Foss, fly. yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Foss and Fly and yeah. Uh, was that the guy you were thinking about? I listened to a podcast when you were talking to Pio, when you were reminiscing about Castel del Fuego, and they're all around there, and and that was my introduction to that area. Was going to meet. I don't remember the guy's name, but I think it was Coef was the one that I was trying to think of oh, at that it? time. Oh, okay, yeah, Coef, right. yeah. and they they eventually sold to an Asian company, as I recall, like their Japanese distributor or their Korean distributor or something. And went nowhere and ended up gone a short time later. So, but I yeah, think it was Coef. They had the coolest feature though. They had this. They had this thing that they had, like a slide changer, really fast. Chum, 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 chum. You know where you could you could rotate between three slides super fast. And which uh, one was you that? Could put Thirty-five mil slides fly. Yeah. Foss was the manufacturer. It was like the Fly Five or something. Yeah, I remember that. And I yeah. can remember programming stuff where where you'd have this bird flying across the stage when it was just, you know, like a, a very, very basic, um, very, very basic animation thing going across. <laughs> Funny. I have to say fly as a manufacturer, they did some really, really out of the box stuff. If you remember the helicopter head that would had um, fiber optic pin spots on it, it was called, I think the Medusa. Right. Oh, wow. Oh, I don't remember um, that. But they did, it, it was really weird. And all those years ago under Rimini, those were always the guys that had the very unusual out of the box thinking product. Right. Mm, so uh, yeah. it's kind of neat. You know? Yeah. There was yeah, some cool stuff over there. It didn't work very well, but yeah, it was. Right. <laughs> yeah. Spent more time fixing it than. Uh, yeah. But, well, yeah, and then yeah. you can't get parts and it's yeah, just so. a whole series of, you know, it's, it's like uh, sort of a bad nightmare. But uh, really cool innovation happening at that time. Like we talk about this all the time that the innovation now is is much more small, incremental. Uh, it has to be, doesn't it? Because it's developed. So we were talking recently in the office about LEDs and, and, and you know, there isn't now, it's unlikely to be an optics. It's unlikely to be anything that's a quantum shift unless it's a different source now. It's, yeah. just, it's just getting better and polished and more reliable mm -hmm. and yeah. slightly more efficient. Each, each, each development is... It's a slight improvement. These sort of fifty percent, twenty percent improvements just don't tend to happen. Now. Yeah, it's it's very true, and it, it a lot of the improvements now are starting to be more practical, less less artistic, more practical. You know, mm. we talk about it all the time: weight and and efficiency and size and truck packability and and oh, uh, yeah. just the ability ability to execute more quickly, to to hang it faster or better or whatever. So. Just uh, you know, more more practical uh, well, improvements. Well, as you say now. about the corporate changes that have gone on, I mean, those yeah. sort of things are really really important to these big grown up rental companies now. It's well, it's, 
That and, and the fact that everybody wants more of everything, you know, bigger screens, more moving lights, more of this, more of that. And, you know, you have to do something because you can only put so much weight up there. You can only fit so many pixels per square meter or whatever, you know, and so you have to do something. And so it's cool to see some of the innovation that's happening. And I thought actually LDI was one of the more interesting um, LDI shows that I'd been to recently because it wasn't just like everybody's got a BI, everybody's got a this, everybody's got a that. It You started seeing little tweaky things where you could tell high-end apart from Verilite, apart from Elation, apart from Martin. Everybody had their own sort of little spin on things that was just a bit different and everything seemed more efficient. You kind of got to these yeah. days, haven't you? Because if you haven't, you know, the, the race is trying to convince lighting designers that that product A or manufacturer A product is significantly better than the rest. And yeah. they've got a unique feature in them that makes them so specifiable. And, the, you know, you, you've got to find something in your lighting products or the manufacturers want you to find something in the lighting pro- in their lighting product that others don't have so that there's the one. If it gets specified, they can't turn it with something yeah. cheaper. Yeah, the, the spec lock. But the, the thing that I see more and more now, like back when I was doing this, when I was working for Martin specifically, um, you if they used your hard edge, they used your wash light typically. Like yeah. it was your whole package. Now you see more and more where there's an Elation whatever, there's an Ayrton whatever, there's a high-end whatever. There's like five or six different manufacturers in the rig because they're going for something fairly specific in each of those cases. Either that or they just want to remain friendly. The designer wants to be friendly with all the manufacturers and throw a bone to each one of them. But I think more likely it's what the rental company had kicking around and they do a deal for so much a week. Which is good that it's come back to that because we do have to come back to that at some point. Like, you know, we've talked about this a whole bunch as well is, is just the economics of the whole thing. And um, at some point, you just have to be realistic. The show isn't going to be much different based on using manufacturer A versus B versus C. So let's be fiscally responsible about it, at least. Um, you know, and of course, control being the, uh, the, the difference maker there. <laughs> you know, you have to thank have goodness. the right control, thank <laughs> God. But uh, so you're at AC Lighting. And... Yeah. 10 people. The company's obviously growing quickly. Um, So I would guess one of the big changes, and this is just me making this up. I didn't read this story, but one of the big changes or or scale uh, things, events that happened was that the whole hog happened and especially the hog too, right? And you guys were the distributor. Yeah, well, we got involved in Hog One. Um, I guess you had Nils on the other day. I haven't heard that podcast yet, yeah, but it's I, good. I will make a point of um, doing it. But Nils was was running around America. I, I remember, <laughs> I remember going to Spotco, meeting um, Tom and, and Beaky up in the up in the loft there. They were in the, in the above Spotco in, yeah. uh, in in West London and uh, Northfields, and, um, and and they David said to me, "said Can you go down and have a look at this desk?" Um, cause Pete Miles had been onto Phil and said, you, you know, you need to get involved in this. Pete Miles who owns Spotco was also a shareholder in flying pigs. And, um, said, you need to, you know, maybe you guys could get involved with selling it because we're trying to sell it and we're not having much success. And, um, so I went down to have a look at it and there was 
It's this crazy concept of a lighting desk with more than one DMX output. I mean, who the hell would need that? Yeah. And had ridiculously 6,000 channels. I mean, it was just insane. How, how could you possibly need something so huge? Um, but I went down and, and had a look at it and thinking it was going to be an absolute joke. And I just, it took me into a whole other world. I couldn't believe it. It was uh, incredible. Yeah. 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 And, um, and yeah, we, we did a deal with them. We'd started distributing it. And, um, and we started selling it, getting into our stride. We were doing well. And, and Bob Gordon had just come on board in America and he was, he was really getting his teeth stuck into that. And so we started selling some, um, getting onto some really cool projects. And, and then, uh, I don't know how long, maybe less than a year, maybe six months or something like that into the relationship. They said, they're going to stop building it. The what? Yeah. yeah, we realize now that the potential of this and we want to go back and we've got a whole load of new ideas of, of what we can do. So we, we want to make a, another one that's, um, you know, more sellable because you, you're saying one of the problems with this is it's too expensive. You know, it was, I don't know, 20 grand or something pounds. Yeah. And uh, so they said, well, if we could do something, maybe half that, you know, with, how would that work? And that would be great. But when can we have it? You know, and yeah. Took them, Jesus Christ! It was it was so painful. Yeah, they were I they swear. were either ingenious or completely mad for doing that, right? For yeah, for a just bit of both, stopping. Actually. I mean, there's there yeah. is so there's a lot of genius in those guys for sure. Yeah, um, you know, they they really yeah. But, but what a bold and brave move because if they would have kept going down the path of the hog one, it would have been much harder, I think, to sort of you know reverse all of that and go into the hog two. And the hog two was obviously the platform that the world wanted at that point. So. Yeah, and especially as, as as you've got somebody like Beaky that was having to build them all himself. So, yeah. you know, it's just not scalable. They were literally PCs in a box and a huge big hardware. I mean, lovely bit of engineering, but it, they needed to make something they could properly make. I think they could see the potential there, but they couldn't do it with that big piece of hardware. And there wasn't many built, 20-something, you know, and... Um, I know I'm one of the few people, I guess Beaky has as well, and, and maybe Dave Lewin, who was one of the guys that worked for him, but I've operated every single one of those hog ones. Um, wow. You know, at some point or another, I've had my hands on them and spoken DMX to lights. Not That's all running crazy. shows, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, that is um, crazy. So after the, after the hog took off a bit, you know, AC Lighting is obviously known as a very high-quality distributor, but, you know, you went from – selling everything a very broad spectrum of things taking anything to you know ac kind of narrowed its focus for lack of a better term right so the ac well, lighting that exists today is very narrowly not narrowly focused just for lighting consoles but just very ah uh, so you're thinking of ac being, being your north american you're you're thinking of the of the subsidiary ac lighting in america which is absolutely it's a very focused distribution company but ac Entertainment Technologies, which was what AC Lighting in the UK turned into, um, mm. is hugely diverse, and they've got a massive range of products. That you know, they they they're so still the same business model. Then no really calling of the of the lines per se to focus on your your core products. Well, it was it was twofold. There was the wholesaler out, you know, the the sort of supermarket approach, which you know, let's face it, is if you're a venue or you're a rental company, being able to go to one place and get everything from a bunch of guys you trusted was was pretty cool offering. But then there was the the exclusive product side of it that, that I used to get involved with. Um, I moved away from getting anything to do with lamps or anything like that, and I just focused on on the the product management side. So eventually, working my way up, you know, director of the company, product management, and um, and, well, and that's what I was doing. So then we we followed through with putting flying pigs and jans together to do the jans hog, 
and then mm -hmm. got on board with WYSIWYG. That was also part of our, our, our sort of portfolio at the time. And so that was my part of the business was, was running that side of it. Yeah, I forgot all about that Jans Hog 1000 and Jans Hog 500 and all that stuff. I forgot about that. Don't forget the, the Jans Hog 250 and 600s, which were our first attempt. They were so mm. incredible too. Yeah, they were great. Yeah, and and one of the my favourite desks ever was the Event Four, which had the world's simplest effects engine. But honestly, you could do almost anything with it. It's, <laughs> yeah, it was well, and you had to sometimes. you had to start somewhere to get to where we're at today. Obviously, with with the yeah. technology and how powerful the effects engines are and stuff. It's all moved on. That's for sure. Yeah. So I would I would think, and I apologize, I've got some background noise here, but I would think that um, because of your technical background and your engineering experience and, and desires and all of that stuff, that while this console was taking off, your role became more and more important. You were probably demoing consoles and getting involved in that aspect, right? Well, part of, well, I, yeah, I guess we had a bunch of guys doing that, but in, in the end, you know, we, we, we became a significant part of our business. So we, we had people like, uh, Mike Faulkner that, um, that used to work for me and, and Mark, as you, Mark Ravenhill, who, you know, now that runs yeah, GOP North America, yeah. he, he was, he came off away from Martin and worked for us and he, he worked in our team and we were out, uh, going around the world, demonstrating, getting new new distributors set up and we you know we built an international network there which has um has been incredible mm, really well and fun. i think that was a huge uh you know component to the success of that console was that you have to realize that to get a console to scale like that we do have to have like this world-class support network and user base who are very knowledgeable programmers who are knowledgeable etc yeah, I mean that's that's one of the key strengths today with ma is is it's yeah that's a great product but more than just a great product is you must have the, the right distribution network to, to back it up. If you, if you haven't got the right support, forget it, go home. No, absolutely. No well, and yeah. I, I also remember, I mean, one of the things I think you guys did or, or hog did anyways, was create this sort of quote, uh, programmer genre where guys, instead of just getting a normal day rate for a laborer, we're now getting, you know, I'm a hog operator or I'm a hog programmer and they were getting more money. Sure, absolutely. It Which was, was, was kind of cool. quite a skill to have, you know. I mean, you you could and a lot of a lot of designers use that as a springboard, you know, because they, they get involved with uh, let's say old school designers that perhaps didn't have their head around the moving light side of it properly and and they learned some absolutely invaluable design skills yeah. from from the masters, but they were able to translate it into moving lights and and you know, look at them now. They the, the, the Patrick Dearsons of the world and people like that, you know, they're now, now considered to be the masters, but you know, they, you know, in the days when, when, you know, you were tracking and I was AC, Patrick was, um, uh, what was the clay packy distributor? Group one. group one. Yeah. He was group one. And you know, we were all bumming around the same trade shows together and you know, then it's, um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So when did you move over to, uh, to Boston and why, and how did that all happen? Well, I know when I moved back because we moved back because um, my wife fell pregnant. So we came back because we, uh, I apologize to our North American uh, uh, <laughs> listeners, but we, I didn't want a child with an American accent. So I, uh, <laughs> shame on you. <laughs> but, uh, so that was 22, 23 years ago. So I guess it was 25 years ago, whatever that was. Um, I think it's very funny back. how British people say fell pregnant. Like, you know, you tripped and stubbed your toe in the kitchen and, oh, love, I'm pregnant. I've, I've fallen accent. pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Honey. 
fresh off the Simpsons. Very good. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Well, it's the best fake British accent I could pull out in a moment's notice, given the Very fact that you just, uh, you know, bagged us for the American accent. So, okay, fair even though I'm Canadian. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. But like I talk time. like an American because the Americans were bothering me over my Canadian accent. So I had to ditch it a little bit. And But don't you live in Florida? I do. Where everybody yeah. speaks something other than, you know, American English, I guess. But you don't consider yourself American? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I have a, uh, I'm a citizen. Passport. I have yeah. a passport. I've been American for 20 years or something, but I'll always consider myself a Canadian. You know, yeah. I just, that's where I was born. That's where I was raised. That's where I have my roots basically. Right. Like, just like Fair you, if, as you could move to Asia for 10, 15 years and you'd still be British. Yeah. 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 So you moved to America when? Cause you never actually answered. 20, you know 25 that, right? years ago. Sorry. Yeah. Moved there. And that was when we started Well, very close to the beginning of when we started, um, AC as it was then that became act lighting with Bob Gordon. Um, AC was the first iteration of AC. Yeah. And, uh, we started that with, with the WYSIWYG and whole hog distribution, Jan's distribution. And, uh, we were, Bob, Bob would open any door and, and I would go through there and close them off. So he, he would set up all these demos and I would run around the country doing all the demos. And, um, him and I were like the, uh, the golden team. We were just running around, um, converting all these shows over. It was, it was amazing. It was how, how did, how did, I, I've never heard the story and I don't even know whether or not you can share it, but how did AC become act? Because it just kind of like, I remember getting a letter from Bob one day saying, by the way, we're now called Act Lighting. And uh, I never really... Oh, it was easy. Um, when when we lost the uh, Flying Pigs distribution, when um, High End bought them, <clears throat> don't get me on that one. I refuse to speak on that. Still, still, <laughs> still sore about it. Yeah. I all understand. these years later. But um, anyway, but when that happened there really didn't seem to be a lot of sense or there wasn't a viable business in our opinion uh, uh, to still have uh, a North American office without that strong part of, and because Jan's also jumped ship and went with, uh, with high end. So, um, so there really wasn't enough business to substantiate. In in hindsight, you might've been wrong a little bit, but just saying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's uh, yeah. Um, So, so the logic, well, that was David's decision. Yeah. But, um, But so Bob ended up buying the company. He got some investors on board and bought the company from uh, from the mothership. And uh, part of his moving forward, he wanted to give it his own identity for his own reasons. And so he he, 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 added, he, he added the T on the end. Yeah. How innovative. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't miss a beat. That's I'm going to have a letter. Was a rather brilliant move. No, and you know, we, we helped him get together. Um, it's strange because he tells the story a little differently, but uh, I can very well remember going and, and meeting uh, Michael Adnow, the, the owner of FMA, and, and, and looking at the, uh, the Grand MA1 with a view to Bob taking that on as a distribution deal. And, uh, you know, sort of evaluating the product and saying, actually, yeah, this, this is kick ass. I think this is really very interesting. Yeah. And so Bob took that on in America. And then, in fact, in the UK, we took it on as, uh, as, as AC in the UK to distribute it early on and then as well. Wow. Yes, as you say, Henry, the the rest is history as far as Bob's concerned. He did an amazing job with that. Yeah, he did. Prior to the MA1, I mean, MA Lighting had built uh, the Scan Commander console, right? Which, you know, in talking to people, it had a very robust chassis because I remember really the commentary on that thing is it was ultra reliable, but if you accidentally dropped it or let it fall out of the back of the truck, it still worked. 
It was a very robust console, right? No, absolutely. Yeah, anything that Michael builds, it's, it's um, <laughs> Bob tells a very politically insensitive uh, World War II dodgy joke about you know Panzer tanks and all the rest of it, but <clears throat> but yeah, absolutely. He he builds a very very strong very strong product. So it was just a natural then evolution into the MA1 that was, you know, I guess the, the scan commander had filtered over into the United States already. Was Bob distributing it at that point? And then No, no, he wasn't. No. He only got involved with the um with the with the MA1. And and Bob, to this day, Bob's the most effective salesman I've ever worked with. He's, yeah, he's, he's just amazing. Incredible, incredibly yep. driven guy. And I've worked a lot of exhibitions with him and I've, you know, I've I've very good mates with him and uh, known him for a long, long time. <clears throat> I haven't worked the market. I've never known a salesman to be, you know, he, he used to, uh, he used to say to me, you know, every morning I get up in the morning, my first thought is who am I going to sell a lighting desk to today? You know, that's, that's his mentality. He's just really old school sales guy. Yeah. And, uh, and he was so pissed off um, having lost the distribution deal for a whole hog when he put all that work into it. Um, of course, when when he had a new product, he was really fired up, and he just he, he put two hundred percent into it. It was incredible. Yeah, I actually uh, I remember I was actually at High End very briefly, and it just happened to be right at the time that uh, High End was taking over the Hog, and um, I got a call from my friend Bob Gordon, you know, basically saying I was the devil and I was this. And <laughs> I'm like Bob, I just work for these guys; they write me yeah. a paycheck, right? Like I didn't steal anything from you. I didn't take it from you. I didn't have anything to do with that decision. So please, you know, let's not uh, let's not get too carried away here. So because uh, him and I have been friends for a long time as well. So what is what is Amber Amber Sphere? What is the company, or what is yeah. what is what is, what is the, the company? Name? What is the company? What is the name the too? Name. Okay, well, yeah, because there's, there's a good little story to do with the name as well. Yeah, um, we when I left AC, I, I didn't. I left AC just I was stopped enjoying it. We, you know, we went back. I went back after America, and, and we built up the business and built up an incredible business. You know, it was uh, it was amazing. But it, it for me at least, it stopped being a lighting company. It was just a it was a a, a big company that required a lot of management and. And, and it stopped doing the things or I was unable to do the things I enjoyed there because, you know, I wanted to be a lighting guy and, uh, and I had me more never ending distribution meetings and health budget and meetings. And all, yeah, yeah. All that stuff. I just couldn't be yep. done with it. So I just stopped enjoying my work. Don't get me wrong. I was earning great money, stuff like that. I was very happy in that regard, but, uh, and they always looked after me super well, but, um, but in the end there's more to life than that. And yeah. so I left, I left them not knowing what I wanted to do. I just got a bit disillusioned and sort of um, just went off and, and took a few months off to kind of scratch my head and figure out who I was and what I wanted to do. And, and um, over the years, I'd made little notes of business ideas and a bit like, do you have Dragon's Den over there where you... Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Dragon's Den in Canada, but here we have uh, Shark Tank, same thing though. Okay, so 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 I sat down and I, one of my jobs at AC was people used to come and pitch me ideas you know, they've got this amazing new DMX splitter or whatever it was that they were trying to get us involved with. And I, I got pretty good at identifying products that really had legs. And, yeah. you know, we had a lot of good products. But we missed out the whole Chroma Q thing. But we, we, we had, a, we had a, a lot of good products there. And I had quite the eye for, for choosing the right products and working, identifying that. And um, so I, I kind of pitched the ideas to myself properly and worked up a bunch of business plans. And in the end, 
you know, I was going to make a wind farm and I was going to do all sorts of different things, but but none of them really, really were going to work. They needed too much capital or this. There was always a reason why, why it wasn't going to be right for me at the time. Um, but then I had this concept of a really good distribution business that wasn't, I kind of figured if, if, if a lot of companies would like to have their own office in the UK, but just can't justify it, that was, that was my underlying thinking. Um, you know, plenty of, of, and at the time I was thinking companies like, I don't know, strong follow spots or companies like that, we'd never sell enough follow spots in the UK to make it worthwhile having their own office, but it was an important market to the manufacturers and they could really do with strong representation there. And uh, at the same time, I'd had quite a few conversations with people after I left um, AC that they'd been in touch and I just backed everybody and said, look, I don't know what I want to do. How about, you know, once I got my head clear, I'll give you a call and we'll have a chat. And uh, so I, I did a lot of that and I, I got back in touch with people. Some people um, were, were fine with that. Other people took offense thinking I should be, you know, jumping at the any opportunity to join their companies, but I didn't. And and one of the companies I got back to was um, was MA that they wanted um, they wanted a better distributor in the UK, and uh, so that's how we started. I, I thought the Clay Packy was a, was a good fit for me, maybe, and uh, MA seemed to be a perfect fit. And we got talking, and in the end, um, they had a company in the UK, MA Lighting in um, UK Limited, but it, it was losing money each year because the overheads required to do that to do that job um you know they were they were too big to to support an office on its own yeah so we uh so so we got chatting um with uh po who you had on the other day yeah and uh and we, we came to the conclusion that i'd manage both ma and clay packy in the uk and if it worked well we'd give it a like nine months trial and if it worked well then we'd set up a distribution company of which i'd be part owner in and um, and we would we would run that a- along with the uh, the people that own the MA distribution, which is Light Power in Germany. Um, uh, Ralph Versorka, who's now my business partner, and uh, so so we did that. We did that, and it worked incredibly well. Um, just was in it nine a, months alone. Was we, it distribution though, or was it was it an agency type of deal? Like, did you actually have product? Did you have inventory? Uh, with moving lights to a certain extent, and as long as you've got a close support from the manufacturer, you don't really need much inventory. You yeah. need demo stock and you need spare parts, but nobody turns around to you and says, hey, I want to buy 24 moving lights if you can get them to me here for lunchtime. So, you know, normally you've got a bit of breathing space on that. Well, but and, the reason um, I ask, because I, I think, you know, the agency model I think is a great model where, you know, just in round numbers, and this is by no means a representation of the profits that you're making or anything else, but... As a distributor, you need to make somewhere in the in the area of thirty to thirty five percent profit margins uh, to bring in the product, to have it there, to service it there, to have parts, etc. You know, you might be sitting on five ten million dollars in inventory, etc. That all costs a lot of money, so you have to have a thirty thirty five percent distribution margin. I, I don't know any distributor that can can uh, make that sort of margin, so I don't know where you're getting your numbers from, but uh, yeah. Well, that's, I, that's way, way bigger than, uh, than, than any distributor I know of. Really? Huh? Mm. I mean, cause I know that in the U S that's roughly what people are looking to make is somewhere 30 to 35% as a, as a margin, a blended margin, call it a blended margin. Um, and whereas a, a sales agent type of model where you're just handling sales and marketing maybe for that product or sales they're doing their own marketing and you're helping 
that process along or whatever, and you're at 10 or 12%, um, you know, to me is a much more viable margin today when international shipping is much easier, et cetera. Like you said, there's generally going to be a lead time involved where people are okay with that. Mm. Yeah. So am Um, I way off? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of margins, but of course not. Yeah. but the bottom line is that um, we, we put that together and it worked super well. And in that yeah. time, we'd effectively repaid all the losses that the company had had in four years. So wow. it was a no-brainer. So we so we put a new name. We, we changed the name of the company. Instead of calling it MA Lighting UK Limited, which, of course, if you, you couldn't be called MA and then sell something else. So um, so, so we, we, uh, we came up with the name Ambersphere. And the Ambersphere is every... MA console of the time had a yellow trackball on it. Oh, jeez. Um, That's so funny. We were going to call it Yellow Ball or Gelberklugel, as it was, um, <laughs> which is Yellow Ball in German. But uh, but in the end, Ambersphere is the name that won through. Everybody agreed on being that it's, um, you know, Ambersphere, Atmosphere. It kind of had a nice Yeah, yeah that's so we cool. That's that a good one. story. Yeah. Yeah. So the company now is is the quote distributor, and whether it's a sales agent or a distributor, whatever it oh, is, no, we're, absolutely we're a distributor. There's no no question about that. We distribute products. We distribute for four brands. Yeah. Oh um, we, wow. We dropped Clay Packy last year, but um, we we we're, we're now um, MA Lighting, Ayrton, uh, Robert Juliet, and um, and and uh, Astera. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. Four very great lines, by the way. Uh, fantastic lines. Absolutely fantastic. Yes. Yeah. So, so just going back to when you kind of stepped in and the MA office closed and the Clay Packy, I guess, office closed also, did you go to those offices and cherry pick the best employees out and bring them into your your business yourself? Or did, yes. What, I mean, no, nobody, go down? nobody lost their jobs. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we took on the staff. Um, not everybody wanted to stay. There was a, a sales guy. Um, that didn't want to stay. I guess for whatever reason, um, he didn't feel he could. He could. Um, he could find a place for him in, in, in our organization. But I mean, we're only a small company, you know, so it's, it's not a it's not yeah. big deal. But yeah. and maybe egos get in the way. But um, you know, my the other chap, the chap that was involved with um, MA at the time, who was running that part of it, was um, was Philip Norfolk, who's who's been absolutely fantastic. And he's now a partner in Ambersphere. You know, he's a, he's an equity partner in Ambersphere. He's, um, he's had a terrific, his, his attitude towards that happening was, well, he could have got the hump and, you know, stormed off, but he didn't, he, he knuckled down and got on with it. And uh, he's, we have, we have the best time just working together. It's absolutely incredible. So you have involvement directly with MA Lighting as well. You have a title, a big title at MA Lighting. Uh, yes. And- well, MA, MA is two companies. MA is MA Lighting Technologies, who is the manufacturer and developer of the product. And then there's a company called MA Lighting International, which look after the sales, marketing, support, and product management of MA. And I'm the managing director of that company. Wow. So you run that company, which is basically a global company, right? Yes. Yes. We have close to 60 distributors around the world. Yes. Wow. Along with also being an owner and some sort of a manager, I would guess, managing director of Ambersphere as well, right? Yeah, but I'm, you know, I have a bit of help. (laughs) So what do you do in your spare time, Glenn? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. No, it's, it's fine because, because we have, 
we have such a strong team at MA. It's it's incredible. And that's the key, I think, of anything like this is you need the people. The trick, honestly, is employing people smarter than yourself and uh, and then they help you uh, they help you look good. Yeah. Well, in my case, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> I do it every day. Uh, so MA Lighting, um, you know, you started obviously on the distribution side, working for the distributor, then owning a piece of the distributor or however that all went down yeah. from a, uh, standpoint of, you know, whatever laws or whatever. But, um, so, you know, you've been there for a major part of that company's growth, I would expect. And I don't know what that growth curve is, but it, it's probably shaped like a hockey stick, I think, right? Where it just kind of went whoop. We have had, yeah, I've been there. So, uh, Ralph, who, um, who's my business partner, Ambersphere, who, who's also the owner of the MA Lighting distribution side, the MA Lighting international side. Uh, six years ago, he invited me to, uh, to, to look after MA as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been managing director six years, and yeah, you're right. It's, 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 it's been the perfect time to join, I have to say. It's, um, it's been an incredible ride, absolutely incredible. Well, at the same time, I think the last couple of years have probably been frustrating, challenging, uh, you know, having a product that people want that badly, but can get from a hardware standpoint, but not, not in its full, you know, full picture, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, we knew when we were talking about the transition about, you know, when we realized that we, we needed to have another software platform to do what designers and and programmers were asking us to do and to scale to the size we could see that the grand ma2 was never going to be able to we just can't keep improving that it was never going to get to where we needed it to get to to meet the demands of the users what they were asking for so um you know it, it was obvious to us that we needed to start again and we, we sort of tried to figure out the best way that we could do a transition. And it's such a mammoth software undertaking. It, it, it became fairly obvious to us that if we were going to do new hardware, which we needed to do because the old hardware couldn't cope with the, with the sophistication that, that of the software. That was my next question, yeah. Had to happen. We had to do that. So what we figured is we'd be better off having... You know, let's think of it as, I mean, as it's turned out, it's really worked this way. But at one point we were even discussing, let's just do new hardware and then do new software as a completely separate thing. Don't tell anybody about it. Just do it later. But in the end, we decided not to. We just decided, well, you know what, let's just drop our trousers, show everybody everything. And, and, and you know, let's let's just be honest about this. One thing that we, I like to think that we stand for is integrity and we try to do the right thing always. And um, so, yeah. yeah, that's what we decided so, to do. So some questions about the uh, the hardware uh, platform, you know, so obviously, uh, and me having worked for high end and selling hog two consoles, you had the what was it that a 386 risk processor and the, you know, uh, the technology just aged in in IT world, right? Yeah, and absolutely. I would imagine to a certain extent when the engineers in MA look at this, they're going, we're not going to be able to get the parts much longer for, for an MA2, right? So we're, we're actually seeing end of life for yes. sets and drives. And obviously, you know, you, there's, there's been an upgrade to the screens and, you know, storage and everything else. So yeah, I, I guess so the transition or, you know, to the MA3 is really now a, a hardware platform that's going to hold you probably for five or six years before you have to then start again changing you know, well, chipsets yeah. and, and hardware, right? Yeah, let's hope so. Yes, but I mean that's and that's part of your decision process when you 
when you choose the products, when you choose the components and why you choose them is, is the longevity. You know, you don't have access to the latest and greatest gaming stuff because that that's being replaced every year. You know, you need to choose product components that, that you know, industrial components that you, you're going to be able to get in another five years or, you know, you're going to have at least in five years' time, you're going to have a, a last look and place an order for another 1,000 or 10,000 or whatever it is you need. But a key, a key component with the hardware is, of course, yes, we could have re-engineered completely different under-the-hood um, hardware that would have continued to work with the Grand MA2 software and just continued it on, you know, as, 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 a, as a Grand MA2 um, Plus. almost not telling anybody. Yeah, yeah. Just, just kind of roll it through and, oh, this one's a lot more responsive. But, but software ages too. And, you know, if you're going to do it, I think rather than re-engineer another box, black box, to make it look just like a, a two and then do a surprise later on that half the people with the twos, their hardware is no longer compatible and couldn't be, our feeling was it would be much better off, especially with some of the ideas that we were, you know, that, that people have been putting to us and the technologies that were available with, with the letterbox screens, um, you know, with, with, with other components in there that we wanted to do dual encoders and stuff like that, that, you know, we would, uh, a grand MA 2.5 was never really going to be the right solution. So yeah. you know, grand MA three was, was the right way to go. And our first priority was to make sure that it would run grand MA two software perfectly. Yeah. I mean, I guess ideally the, the challenge is with the hardware and software being separated by such a long period of time is where the frustration happened. I would guess on both the, the buyer side, but on, on your side as well. Um, so, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, though. I mean, launching the hardware platform, getting it reliable and solid with the existing software, separating, you know, the brain from the body kind of thing um, was very good from a standpoint of not crashing shows and stuff like that. Um, but, but it just, just seemed to be no, challenging for the point. industry. We did make sure that anybody that was ordering consoles knew absolutely upfront um, we didn't supply any consoles that weren't on that basis. Yeah. That they knew that that they were buying it as a as a expensive Grand MA two effectively. You know, yeah, it was a Grand yeah. MA. It you buy it for what it does now, and you know you'll effectively you know, say you get the software for free. Of course you do, but yeah. you know it, it's rather than selling it on what it what it might do in the future or what it's supposed to be doing. You know, we really tried to. Yeah. Yeah, we've got visions of the future for Grand MA3 that, that, that nobody knows apart from us that are, you know, tremendous, but we're not mentioning any of that stuff on the websites. We're, we're just, you know, trying to keep it straightforward. And yeah, no, and don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not bagging on you at all. I, I think given the circumstances, I think the company and certainly ACT over here as well did a very good job of not only not misrepresenting the facts and, and tricking yeah. people into buying expensive new hardware, but just keeping people sort of up to date. And it was, uh, you know, the stick was moving because nobody really knew what the launch date was going to be for that software. So I don't Including think... Including us. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone really tried to create sort of a, an untrue scenario mm. or a deception no, no. or anything like that. It didn't seem like it. It just seemed like to me as a former manufacturer, distributor, it just seemed extremely challenging just from a standpoint of, you know, well, 
I can't really keep selling the two hardware because, you know, it's going to be obsolete at some point. And I can sell the three hardware, but I can't sell the software. So just packaging that all into a pitch is very hard, you know. And, no, definitely. And, and I have to say, you know, knowing how we ended up, would we have done it differently? You know, we may have approached it slightly differently had we have known the full story, you yeah. know, at the time. However, you know, we are where we are. And, and um, I think at every step of the way, we've always tried to do the right thing and including making sure when we, when we were talking about launching it, you know, at ProLight and Sound, we had meetings with all the distributors several months in advance, like four months in advance, informing them that they could inform their key customers before them. I think it was in the January of that year so that, and, and anybody that had consoles on order, if they wanted to cancel their two order and, and take a three instead, that was their prerogative. Or if they just wanted to cancel out the twos until, until they weren't sure, you know, and see what's happened, that was fine as well. You know, we, yeah. we really, really tried to be fair with everybody so that we desperately didn't want to be in a situation where we had angry people. Of course, we, yeah. One thing is, of course, we cannot keep all the people happy. We know that. Yeah. But we just wanted to, we wanted to try to do right by people. In a lot of cases... You know, some people have been buying consoles for they've been saving up literally for years to buy. You know, individuals yeah. have bought them, and that's you know that's 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 terribly upsetting. If if they you know, so we 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 absolutely made sure that people um, ahead of the time where we launched the product, as in launched and told for, let's say previewed it, were aware that we were going to preview it. So they, if they were to take a console in that sort of three or four months leading up to the point where we would show people what it was. Um, that they that they could cancel their order, you know, no question, yeah. or, or you know, or or swap it later on, or do something nice, you know. But uh, it's just a difficult so, situation that's hard to do perfectly, no matter what yeah. you do. So, I mean, yeah. I guess the alternative, the big alternative, would have been to hold the hardware until the software was ready and just keep selling MA twos, uh, or even discounting the price of an MA two in preparation of the three coming out and continuing to sell ME2s, but letting people know that there's a three coming roughly a year from now or whatever. Um, there's all, there's all sorts there's of no scenarios, perfect but answer. what it does, what it does mean is that people that invested in the threes, um, have had opportunity in the meantime to make money from that rather than buying a two and then doing the same rentals with that two and then having to buy a three later. So, you know, we, yeah. we, people have, have got on board earlier. Yeah. You know, there is the criticism that people have levied at me that said, look, I bought this more expensive two, or more expensive three, um, you know, because the prices went up. Having said that, the prices were unchanged for 10 years, so I don't think that's unreasonable that the prices went up. Yeah. However, you know, that, that we've bought this, but we can't sell it. We, we can't rent it for any more because, yeah. um, you know, the market sets a price for the two, and this is basically a, an expensive two now. And I yeah, think that I, crowd I, seems to be smaller, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, from what I hear anyways, like I've seen a couple of angry mobs on Facebook or whatever. Um, there were a couple of fairly lengthy discussions where people were piling on, um, and, you know, they seemed to be responded to well by people from MA yep. and, you know, kind of quashed at the end. So uh, it seems like anybody who was bitching is now probably operating the three software somewhere, you know, and loving it and going, oh, my God, this is so unbelievable because I haven't heard any anything bad. I don't know if there's major glitches or anything. I haven't heard it, which doesn't mean anything, but... So, I mean, it's just, it's a challenging situation when you launch hardware 
a year before the software, which I believe was more than a year, right? Yeah. So well, it's challenging, but you know, it's it's as I say before, we we, we knew day one we were never going to keep everybody happy all the time. So we went for the the option that we felt was the most honest and upfront. And, um, you know, and, and, and went with it and, yeah. um, you know, that's the best we could do really. So how is the new software performing? I've, I've heard rumor that, you know, there was many, many thousands of downloads, like in the first couple of weeks. Well, I did do a little bit of preparation. Yeah. And so, um, in the first 24 hours, so we, we, we pressed the button on 12th of December in the first 24 hours, there were, oh, I should say. Up until that point, we'd shipped over 3,000 Grand MA3 consoles. So wow. that puts it into perspective. Um, we had 2,700 console software downloads in the first 24 hours. The on-PC software, um, 12,000 on-PC Windows wow. versions and 6,700 on-PC Mac versions, plus, plus over 3,000 of the uh, Grand MA2 version 3.8 software, which, is, which goes in tandem with that. So you can do um, show, you know, the shows can, uh, can, can, can uh, go between the systems. So, so if, um, you're a, if you're an MA2 programmer, yeah. right, and you've just downloaded the MA3, and let's say yeah. that you, you've, you got the hardware in front of you, the new hardware in front of you, how long really is the uptake on that? So if you're, you know, let's say that you're a, a programmer, uh, an eight on a scale of one to 10. So you're an advanced programmer. You're not the absolute ninja on MA2, but how long is the uptake or that transition take for you for an average LD to get comfortable with? Well, what we've tried to do is, is we've, we've put a whole bunch of training online. What we figured is that there's going to be, um, we, we, we estimate there must be something like about 40,000 um, Grand MA users. Maybe there's more that is out, out there. And we figured that we can't train everybody at the same time. And of course, there's nothing, nothing is as good as one-on-one -on -one training. Our standard MA training is normally eight people in a classroom, and, it, and the MA2 training takes three days. The MA, the MA2 training takes three days. Yeah, lots of twos and threes in this conversation. Um, <laughs> we, uh, with the MA3 training, the standard training course takes two days. And what we've done is we've made a, we, we started this process actually a couple of years ago because we put all the MA2 training online as well um, in preparation to, for the MA3 launch. Um, so that we've got all the training online. By that is a whole learning management system course we developed, and that was all part and parcel of the launch. So on the 12th of December, all that was live. So there's full training online. You just have to go to your MA distributor, ask for a, a code, and you can have it for free. Um, and uh, we give you a code that then gives you login, and you can learn the software properly that way rather than sit there trying to scratch your head. I mean, you can type help and press any button or you can press the help key and press any button. It'll give you, tell you what's going on. You can go online and, and you can do training. You, you can, you can attend a training course, but you know, in the UK, we have one training center. We can train what 16 people a week. You know, that that's quite a few weeks to, to get the UK market. Yeah. So in the last couple of years, everybody that's come in for grand MA2 training, we've given them one of these licenses as they walk away from that, of the training, they go away with that. We're all their grand MA2 training. Say, look, if you ever need anything, you know, just go on there and you, 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 you can 
you're basically the same courses online. So if you're not quite sure and you're dealing with macros or something, just dive in there and, and it's all in there 24 hours a day. You can just look at it. But Glenn, um, is, it, is it basically a completely new platform? Like you're not just teaching people the new features when you're training them from two to three. Well, it's a slicker interpretation of the old one. I mean, it's it's respectful of Grand MA one and two, but it, it's it's got newer ideas in it. So, yeah. you know, storing a queue is the same. You know, patching. You got a different looking window, but basically, you know, you select some lights, you give them start addresses, and, and yeah. But and let me give you a theoretical question. Orientation. Yeah. Go so, on. is it just as easy to train somebody walking in from a uh, insert biggest competitor here? console training or somebody who already knew how to work a two like is the no, syntax for, for different sure. it's enough a, it's a very it's a very it's a very easy curve from a two so okay okay that's the um, question i was asking yeah no it's, it's no problem there i mean you do things in the same way it still thinks like a grand ma full stop that's how yeah. it thinks so um, i'm an i'm a numbers guy you know when it comes to impressive numbers and honestly like i i sat here listening to you talk about um what you did in the first 24 hours, 2,700 console, full console downloads yeah, to me is impressive enough, but then you add in 12,000 windows downloads and 6,700 Mac downloads. That's, that's outrageous. I mean, you yeah, know, so we're talking about yeah. over 20,000 downloads in the first 24 hours. Wow. Yes, it hasn't. Just so you know, it hasn't continued at that rate. Of I, course I chose not, those yeah. numbers because they sound really impressive. Well, they are me. very impressive. And it, obviously, people have been waiting a while. So you're going to get a lot yeah. of downloads. Did you have any servers crashing on these downloads or anything? Because it's got to be well, a big package kind, of software, kind of, yes. too. We, well, I, I looked into that as well because we did have we did have at some point, but it's all on the Amazon side of things. So the actual software downloads, not but the directing, when you go to our website and you click on the direction, our, the people that host our website, which is done very professionally in, a, you know, in, a, in, a, in Frankfurt somewhere in one of these big towers, yeah. um, uh, they had a problem. Coincidentally, they had a hardware problem at the same time within the first two hours of our launch. So when you go to our website, you, you, you click on the link that direction going off to the uh, Amazon servers was uh, got broken for uh, how, how for big is this software packet that we're talking about? Oh, um, well, the console was several hundred meg. Oh, wow. And so you had roughly 20,000 of these in the first 24 hours. I mean, that's, sure. that's a lot of downloads. That's like, yeah, yeah. But this is why, you know, we've had problems in the past with big grand MA2 downloads and we went, we were anticipating, just like we you pulled the effort yeah. from, yeah, exactly, because we'd had our servers crashing. You know, we don't host it anymore. It's, it's way beyond our capability. Yeah. And, and it goes global. So when we pressed the button, bang, it was global. You know, um, the, uh, the Amazon distribution system, which is absolutely world-class, best you can yeah. get. Yeah, um, that's that was, what we, we use it. Amazon servers yeah. as well. But so uh, aside from the tiny little glitch with that server on the first day or whatever, have, have there been any, you know, I'm sure no show stopping because probably the whole world would have heard of that, but have there been any major glitches to the version? Like I assume it's 1.0 or whatever. Yeah. 1.0. Yeah. Um, no, but yes, yeah. you know, again, nobody, everybody's not going to be happy. You know, people's expect, we really tried to manage people's expectations to make them realistic. You know, we've tried to, 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 to ensure that people 
get what they expect. But of course, not everybody has access to the same amount of information. Yet we're we're we've done what we think is um, is is the right feature set for 1.0 or an acceptable feature set. Primarily, um, we had a lot a lot of pressure from people with um, the Grand Ami three on PC wings on order. You know, we had um, getting on for two thousand on back order, and people were screaming at us that, that we couldn't ship the consoles, and not that we were desperate to ship them, but people wanted them. We couldn't ship those consoles until we had the Grand Ami three software that would run on them, because the the on PC consoles don't run on the on PC two software. Right. So so um, so we had to uh, you know, we find a, a feature set that we felt was going to be um, perfectly fine for people with the with the on PC wings. Um, which I think, yeah, I think basically we've achieved. Of course, there's people that want this and they want that, you know. But we, we've done, we've done um, the, the the best what we feel. Uh, I hate to use the word compromise because we're, we're trying yeah. not to compromise. Well, everything everything is a compromise. <laughs> there has to be, yeah. yeah. But you know, we'll be following it up with a with a point release uh, before ProLight and Sound next year. So you know, within three months there'll be a, an update, and you know, some of that will be consolidation of the existing software so fixing bugs and making sure it's stable and everything and then we'll have uh, we got 25 percent of our time focused on uh urgent feedback things so people you know one of the, one of the things that people have um commented on was uh was the command wing shortcuts for example so you know that that's something that would fall into that category but there's also features that that just missed the list because we ran out of time and so they, they're getting included and yeah. some of them are already in the latest betas you know but um, yeah but so you're point, still on 1.0 yeah and absolutely. you will be until just before pro light and sound wow yeah unless, unless something catastrophic happens yes that's very interesting and so i would guess the next problem that has been created is now that new software is shipping people want their damn consoles right and so I'm assuming if I order an MA3 full-blown console today, I probably don't get it tomorrow, right? Well, I guess it depends on your distributor. But I know from a manufacturing perspective, um, I looked this up as well. We've currently got um, over 1,800 on back order at the moment. Jesus. So we've shipped good 3,000. So, so yeah, yeah, yes and no. You know, it, yeah. it's still that's a problem. Not where it, I mean, it's, 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 it's better than it was. It was it was 2,200 at one point. But, you know, we're yeah. working. The factory is really you know it's in the last few years it's more than doubled um so uh yeah it's, it's and they're still all produced in germany absolutely yes yeah uh, valvutabrun a little place near Würzburg, um and uh you know uh, michael's business there he, he's got sort of half the industrial estate now he's um, been building buildings over the years he bought a, a big a larger or several plots of land and initially there was building number one and i think they're now they're now up to building number five. And wow. they, yeah, because they just, and they call them MA1, MA2, MA3, MA4. Oh, so that's funny. Then the, they jokingly, some people have heard him talk about MA4, which was the new software building. They, they get yeah. a bit, or no, that was a MA4, is the now on MA5. So MA4 was a, was the um, storage building that he built. And people go, oh my God, they're already talking about MA4. No, no, no. You've no, probably had just... to beef up security on MA5 because, you know, people <laughs> trying to break into that building to see what the hell's going on, right? Yeah, funny. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's quite the building. It's a lovely building, actually. It's it's wild. It's it's such an amazing story because, I mean, it, it really started as just build a console that is the next evolution that people really want, which the MA1 was, and build it well so that they don't break and that they're deadly reliable and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, I just think that 
you know, in a sense, MA really just kind of evolved the industry to the next step and everybody else is playing catch up and continues to play catch up. And, uh, you know, we're starting to see consoles that look a little bit like an MA console and you're starting to see, uh, you know, everyone else really trying to, to get it. But I don't know. I think if I was in the console business right now, I might just be happy to be number two or number three. Sometimes you just have to fall into that position and be a very happy number two or three um, because it's, not everybody's going to use an MA Well, console. in the concert touring, we're particularly strong in concert touring. I right. mean, there's, there's still plenty of other market out, you know, in, in different genres, but, um, you know, there's, there's still lots of business out there. I know a lot of our competitors are also doing really well. So the market's growing, yeah. um, which is, is good for everybody. But I just wanted to mention, we got great product, but, we've got the best support and that that's, yeah. you know, we support the hell out of our distributors, but the distributors around the world do an amazing job. And that's one of the things that are keys to our success is if you choose MA lighting for your control systems, whether you're specifying it, if you're a North American specifier and you're working on a project in Taiwan or, or in Hong Kong or, or anywhere, really, you can get the same level of service and support out there as you can get in North America or anywhere else, you know, and if you're touring, if you have a problem, we had a problem. There was a job. There was a job in Egypt, and um, and we got a phone call one Saturday. Um, oh, Glenn, I got this problem. You know, one of the guys. We need to get. We need to get a. Needed to get a desk there. Um, in fact, it was it was through Ambersphere. It was a it was a UK client that was doing a job in in, in Egypt at the pyramids, and uh, and they had a problem. And uh, we within about an hour, we managed to get a guy there. Quite literally, the distributor with a console on his roof rack going across <laughs> dancing along the road to get that there demo console and they, they did the show and it all happened you know i mean that level of of commitment so the guy in egypt doesn't sell a lot of consoles but he's absolutely got the same spirit for it he's right up for it you know well when you talk about that global support i'm i'm curious because you know i was i was part of many years ago the u.s distribution for martin as you mentioned earlier and one of the problems we had is for example sometimes uh tours like the designer for a tour would be in the u.s we were doing all the work to get it specced and yeah. then the tour would start in the uk and the lighting package would be purchased there so we mm. didn't make the profit on the sale of the product but yeah. we had to not only support it at the front end to get the designer to spec it etc do all the demos all of those things and then when the tour came to the US, the added slap in the face was we had to then support the product while it was traveling across the US, but we yeah. still hadn't sold anything. So yeah. do you, did but you come up with some special way of doing major, that? Being a distributor for a major brand like, you know, in the US, you, you, I suspect you, you, it wasn't like you were sitting there with nothing to do. I Correct. Mean, and, and let's look at it the other way. You know, a lot of the world's largest rental companies are based in the U.S. I mean, you, you talk specifically about the U.S. Those guys tour outside of the U.S. all the time, and they're taking their equipment all over the place. And, and you know, plenty of shame in my them. case, in my case, UK designers specify an awful lot of tours that North American rental companies end up doing. It's just one of those things. It's, yeah, it swings and roundabouts. Where it gets most annoying are things like in the cruise ships. Industry. I was just going to mention, yeah, that's where we got stung a lot of times because we were yep. specifying the package with the Royal Caribbean or Carnival or whatever office yep. here in the U.S. And then it was being built out of FUNA and they started doing these owner supply situations where they were just buying the product directly in Italy or in Finland or wherever the, the shipyard was. Yep. 
and yeah. it takes um, a lot of careful management and, and most manufacturers have a have a mechanism for dealing with it yeah it's evolved a bit since yeah, i was doing it absolutely. for sure yeah so a- anything else before we move on from from ma here because i i uh i don't want to miss anything and and you know it's major i mean what you guys just went through is a very very big thing you know obviously again twenty thousand downloads like that blows my mind if if you would have asked me you know six months ago or whatever what did i think the market was for that size of a console or whatever i never would have come up with numbers like that yeah. i had no idea well, I, I, I guesstimated just so you know I, i'm in the same camp as you i mean i obviously i know the sales numbers but as far as downloads were concerned i'd guesstimated a week before i guesstimated two and a half thousand in the first 24 hours so yeah. i was a factor of 10 out so yeah it's, that's it's just crazy. been incredible and Crazy. Either everybody hates it and they just don't want to play with it anymore, or 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 they're they're getting on with it, and you know maybe uh, you know maybe maybe this spring they might start using it and taking it out. You know, um, yeah. Is is it ready for the world's biggest show? No, not yet. You know, it's going to take a little while just to you know. And why would you if if you've got the backup is Grandma two and the software is there on the desk? If you're doing something really serious, you know, I'd say stick with the two software for the moment until you've had a chance to try the three out properly and convince yourself that it that you that it's ready for you. You know, yeah, it might just not have the key feature you need. You know, if so. Or, At the or same time, we know most better. we know most people won't do that though, because you know the cat's out of the bag and and they're going to be trying their damnedest to use the three software to run their shows regardless of what size that show happens to be right well fingers crossed but uh, we're there to support it whatever happens yeah yeah Mm. so you've been around even longer than i have in in this industry and um what are some of the big changes that you see since your start i think you know sometime in the 80s um like what are some of the biggest changes we we mentioned one of them where it's gone from a real sort of shoulder to shoulder at the bar sort of buddy network to more of a business now it's become more corporate um but what else are you seeing as as major changes in the industry well the obvious one uh, certainly in the concert touring side is is the is the fiscal model touring's now become a profit center for for the artists rather than um, selling records, so that's a that's a that's a huge shift, and therefore, instead of it being part of marketing, and therefore everyone's been a bit more um, lax on the budget side, and they just want to make a big impression, and they're only doing a few shows these days. Money is is made out of touring properly, and so everybody is very very focused on on the financial aspect. It's it's big business it's grown-up business and you know there's lots of very savvy business people working out the numbers and trying to come up with the formulas you know and it it seems quite a few of the companies i guess prg were the first ones to go global but you know there's there's several of the others now are are the larger ones are well structured well funded and um you know they're all they're all seeing there's value in taking their their model and and scaling it yeah yeah the walls have definitely come down as it relates to you know, even just packaging a tour and shipping it around the world and stuff like you used to just make friends with local uh, rental companies. And now it just seems to be a much more global business. It's not, you know, it's it's not separated by by all of these. Uh, well, even though you guys have this Brexit thing going on in the UK right now. So um, but it, it just seems like a much more, you know, one world kind of business now than it was 10 years ago. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a huge shift. And obviously, video is another huge, huge shift. You know, it's it's people are now responsible for the the way a show looks, and that's not just through lighting. Video is a major part of that, and and it's very, very interesting how the software to control the video, how that's evolved, and how how much more of the budget gets gets sent towards video. Yeah, we would you be surprised? Um, I would estimate something like 20, maybe more, 20% of our lighting consoles actually are controlling media servers, so controlling the video elements. Yeah. So one question. Does, 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 uh, does like Grand MA exist because of that type of visual uh, change or shift in the market, or does that visual shift exist because of consoles like the Grand MA? So were we lacking control or were we lacking th- cool, exciting things to do with the control? Well, I would think, you know, these ideas, majority of these ideas come out of the head of, of, of talented lighting designers, creatives who want to do something amazing. And they come and talk to us and say, oh, we want to do this amazing thing. How are we going to do that? Um, like Andy Watson controlling uh, pixel mapping, you know, um, yeah. Radiohead tours years ago, which, which, that kind of concept it starts in, in, in a small uh, catalyst starts in a small catalyst and then, then grows and then becomes professional and then you get multiple companies competing in that same genre and of course a lot of a very few designers have their own ideas most of them sort of hitchhike on the back of other people's ideas and blend them with their own and so it, it just sort of evolves i think you know i, I don't think uh, yeah, we, we didn't have the software ready to do it and then they went and did it they they kind of it kind of grew up together yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just kind of a chicken or egg, you know, question because I'm always curious about that. Like are the tools inspiring the creativity or is the creativity inspiring the tools? I think the second one to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes like I sometimes I believe in the Steve Jobs mentality where Steve one time when someone questioned him, how could you possibly put out a this iPhone thing without a tactile keyboard? You know, people aren't going to want that. And mm. his answer was perfect. He said, people don't know what they want. It's our job to show them that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so sometimes I think the tools do inspire. Like I, th- I think something like an Astera tube, you know, it's a very simple product. And uh, that's actually a perfect collaboration, though, between a product and a, and a, a market's sort of adaptation or, or creativity with that product. So maybe it's a bad example, but I think sometimes you come out with the most incredible creative product on earth and then you just kind of put it out there and see what happens and people just, it, it evolves and grows and scales into this beautiful thing, right? Yeah, but it's, it's a risky business model that because, sure you know, you, go, you develop something and you spend loads and loads of money developing some really cool thing and plenty of people have done that. And then it goes nowhere because people, you know, people don't get on board with it. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't. Yeah, it hits the market with a thud. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was, I could name names, but I'm not going to. I don't want to be disrespectful for other people, but yeah, exactly that. Yeah. One, one question that I had: um, Do you foresee in the future? And I, you know, I've called the death of DMX for a long time now, and it simply hasn't happened. But you know the iPhone and things moving on to mobile devices. Now you're, you're starting to see, at least in the DJ product range and some of the smaller product ranges, things that don't function on DMX. They're just, uh, 
you know, they're over a Wi-Fi network and uh, control protocols are there and you're, you're manipulating things via the, the iPhone and then, of course, the iPad, right, or whatever tablets that you have. Yep. Do you ever foresee a point where, you know, the MA software, for, for lack of a better term, will have its own 5G network and DMX will be completely gone? So it will be rock solid, fully redundant. No. And then... Really? So you're saying DMX is going to go on for another 20 years? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I, I never see a time when when it'll just be a 5G network on the back of a Grandamay and that would be that. But but I think DMX will be around for a long time because there's so much legacy equipment. If you'd have asked me two years ago, I'd, I'd have just laughed and said, no, that's absolutely ridiculous. But now as the Astera distributor and seeing how reliable um, wireless control can be, I mean, there's a limit to what you can do wirelessly. And so on, on the huge shows, you couldn't do it. There's just not bandwidth there. It's just not possible. But for something like that Astera product, it's, it's remarkable how effective and how reliable it is. You know, when you get involved um, with high-speed cameras, they can put out a lot of, a lot of uh, electronic noise. And we've had trouble um, with other wireless signals, um, things like remotes for consoles and stuff like that. I had a lot of trouble in the past. But the Astera product just seems to have found a way around that. It just seems bulletproof. It's it's remarkable. Yeah. So I can definitely see a time when that technology becomes more and more useful and viable and more often used. You know, I think it's early days still for that. But I, I doubt I'll ever see a time when Grand MA will uh, will just have a one big wireless connection. But I, I just suppose you know, it's not it's not in my lifetime. I doubt. I, I see the audio companies, you know, obviously in wireless microphone systems and the Dante networks and things like that, just mm. uh, making tremendous leaps and bounds. It's something that even technically for me is very difficult to keep track of. And I'm, you know, I, I see the lighting industry per se as lagging behind in the leap forwards, the, the leaps forward on the communication protocols, right? Yeah, so. I, I'm, I'm, I'm off the, of the belief that you just can't beat a bit of copper. You know, why? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, why would you not be happy to run a cable to a light? It just, you know, unless you've got dancers running around, throwing them around, just run a cable. You know, why not? And then you, then you just take when you're fault finding, you take that whole that whole issue away. But when we talk about infrastructure and and just, you know, like we were talking about earlier, how product development is getting more incremental and more um, useful as opposed to artistic, you know, you're getting more into just the usefulness and, and the purpose and the function of things being simpler and more efficient. To me, wireless is the future, some version of wireless, because wires right now really are kind of the the limiting factor of a lot of these products, right? Or a limiting factor. Yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah so it yeah, does yeah. seem it's, like a logical conclusion that we're going to get to a, a very solid wireless protocol. If we can all, we can all sit around well, on our easy. mobile phones watching videos... But as you know, that that's not real time. You know that that yeah. sort of stacks up and sends it through. So, but it used to say, you know, in, in ten years ago, nobody would really believe you. You'd be sitting there watching a watching a video in, on on your mobile phone anyway. You're like on the bus as you're going along. So I guess you know it, it's I suppose it's inevitable. I suppose there will be more robust protocols developed and, uh, and and it will become real time at some well point. it seems to me one of the challenges is we're in a small industry where not everyone gets along and everyone has their own idea of what net to use you know 
And yeah. so you'll have the Steve Terry group over the over here and the, <laughs> the so-and-so group over here and the other group over here. And everybody's kind of got really great ideas, but yeah. we can't have, you know, four Betamaxes in an industry that's this small. We do need, like the great thing about DMX is it's standard, you know, yeah. and other than that, there's a lot of downside to DMX, obviously. It's reliable. It's standard. Everybody knows how to use it. But other than that, you know, it's it's not the greatest protocol to be using to control billions of nodes of whatever, right? So mm. hopefully, you know, we'll get there because it does seem to be a limiting factor today. So, um, but what is it you want to do that you can't do with it then? With what wires? With DMX at the moment, what do you want to use it for? That you, you know, what 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 would you? Well, it just I mean, the the limitation obviously is the number of channels, and you know. Don't make me geek out on you here because I'll tell you all the stuff I know in about 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> it won't take long, Glenn, so don't okay. get me started. <laughs> It'll be a very short podcast. But, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it seems, you know, to me that the limitation is, is, or the biggest limitation is the number of channels and the fact that you have to run multiple universes to get to more channels, right? Yeah, that is definitely a limitation, yes. And, and the... the, 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 the um the what do you call it the the amount of data you can send for each channel the um yeah the, the packets yeah 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 the uh jesus christ the <laughs> what are you oh, trying to say glenn mm. anyway yes i did there, there are for sure some technical things but you know you, you get around it it's um but uh, yes who knows let's see yeah hopefully there's some there's some clever guys out there working on exactly those sort of things so one of the things I love to ask people is what, what needs to be made? What, what hasn't been invented that needs to be invented in your mind um, in this industry? Oh, well, that's one I didn't see coming. Um, well, I say it on every one. Okay, I'm You're just sorry. not listening I to I the end, to my friend. I haven't made it to the end of them before. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just love to hear people's thoughts, especially people like yourself who have been so attached to cutting edge product. And, uh, you know, you're a guy, obviously, that has a, a his finger on the pulse a little bit. So, you know, I'm always thinking about why haven't we gone in this direction yet? Why haven't we done this yet? And so I can usually come up with some pretty harebrained answers to that myself. But mm. I love to hear people's perspective. And if you don't necessarily have a perspective on that, that's okay, too. It doesn't make you uh, any lesser of yeah, a person. I mean, I've, I've got ideas. I, I, I know I, I could can some very nice ideas and, and tell you stuff that, that I know that we'll do in Grand MA3 in the future. But that's yeah. kind of giving the game away. So, yeah, you don't want to do that. I mean, certainly, there's, no, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of exciting things to happen in a 3d world, um, you know, moving forward, especially with video and, and, yeah. and, uh, and, and that, um, that's, that's for sure exciting, but that, that's, that's just evolution of the existing stuff. I, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not sitting here as a, as an industry visionary thinking, Oh my goodness, this is the way forward. And we need a, you know, um, wireless rigging is what we need. That's the future. Um, yeah. I'm not seeing that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there there's a lot of there's a lot oh, of directions. Oh, I know. I'll tell you. I'll go. tell you one thing that scares me. What? What scares me is 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 the whole VR thing. What scares me a lot is that you could end up with artists of your choose choice doing because in the UK now they I'm sure they probably do it in America as well. They go and uh, 
they go and video theatrical plays and then they, they theatrical shows and then they go and show it in cinemas. So you can just watch a live show, but in a cinema. Yes. That's nice. Yeah, I, I can see that sort of as VR becomes better and better and better, and they talk about these um, these suits you can wear now that's got little uh, actuators in them, that, so that they can give you tactile feedback. That, so um, your neighbor so can spill a beer on you even when you're sitting at home by yourself right. watching that concert in a VR headset, right? That that scares me because that means that you know in one rehearsal space or while well, they'll rent one venue, they'll put on one show. Yeah, you'll have a live audience in there, but you can probably flick between, you know. 50 different places to watch the show from but um yeah you'll be experiencing a live show and all that but they'll be playing to literally millions and that'll be that they won't do a tour they'll do one mega show and you know from from a, a guy that makes his living supplying gear that would be a bad thing you know we, we like supplying we like it that every venue is busy every night because yeah needs yeah i just i i don't see that happening in that big of a way like i don't see that being a game changer as far as People are still going to go to venues and go see shows. It's just so. people gather. That's what they do. Like people get together, they go, they crowd, they gather, they go, they want to look for girls, they want to drink a beer, they want to do whatever. I just, yeah, you're going to get the nerdy guy who would rather watch, you know, the the concert from his living room with a VR headset on. But I think that's more on the fringes. I don't really think that's the core market. So, so yeah, well, either that or if you look at it just from the fact of being able to if you look at the the download the you know, being able to download music, uh, I would imagine that you would have a set number of venues that had equal theatrical lighting rigs in it that you would have have a show and you would dial into your favorite venue that you're most familiar with, pay that fee as a concert ticket, for lack of a better term. And watch that show in your favorite venue. Obviously, in the United States, like you know, everybody loves Red Rocks here. So, mm. you know, does and that has, I think, an, their sound and lighting is installed in that. But being able to 4K stream that as a a concert ticket, again, like what you're saying through virtual reality, just choose your venue. Oh, yeah, wow. you would yeah. choose you would choose the venue that you wanted to see the band in. So you would still like if you had a touring act that would you know go through Europe, you could see the Kiss show in Paris. If that's was your favorite venue. I think that that ultimately being able to select your content and select your venue is ultimately. Well, here's, here's a go. great new product, Henry. You're, you're mm-hmm. hitting on something here and Glenn's going to go invent it and then sell it back in America through us. But and it was all my idea. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> what you're going to be able to do is through your VR console or whatever, you're going to be able to select an artist, select a venue, select a lighting rig. You can oh. even choose a different designer. Uh, you can make you can make up your dream band and play your favorite genre. Yeah, there you exactly. go, and and you can even decide what the lighting's going to look like and all of that kind of stuff. And and uh, why ever leave your house? You know, we're going to be going to save that for Grand May Four, I think. Yeah, or maybe even five. <laughs> so, um, anything else we've missed, Glenn? Before we let you uh, actually do some real work? No, no. So it's been really interesting talking to you guys. So, yeah. So thanks very much for the call. Now we we appreciate you coming on very much, and um, you know we're big fans, obviously, of the MA3 shipping now because finally we'll have some used MA2s to sell, and uh, hopefully, interesting. I, I did re- I did hear um, probably well this year because you've only like, last year because you haven't been doing it a year, but I remember some of the comments you made at the time going, well, oh yeah, you know those grand MA2s now their price is going to drop through the floor, and it. But I think I think 
generally that process held up pretty well, I think. It has. And that's always been our objective is, is to try to respect people's investment. You know, we wanted, we wanted, always wanted to well, not have the scenario where suddenly they're 10 a penny. But it's a, it's a symptom of scarcity too. So, you know, I think as the MA3 is fully available and isn't 800 units back ordered or 18, I'm sorry, 1800 units back ordered and you're on version 1.3 of the software and the world is golden, um, you know, I think we're going to see uh, certainly a bigger rush of MA2 consoles selling. And we haven't seen it yet. We're probably six, eight months away from seeing it, but uh, it'll happen. I mean, it happens to every product. Every product has a, a shelf life, you know, as the A product, and then it becomes the B product, and then it becomes C, and so on. So, mm, absolutely. Thank I, you. I Glenn. guess inevitably, uh, let's um, let's hope uh, people's investment still really works well. For absolutely. Them. No, you guys have done a great job, and and congratulations on the success. And obviously, there's a lot of excitement out there with twenty thousand downloads in the first day, and it's got to be yeah, double that, exciting. double that at I'm least right away now. By that number. Wow. Yeah, it's shocking. Thanks, Glenn. Have a great Thank day. You, we appreciate you, you, buddy. Cheers, Thank guys. you. Yeah. Have Bye. a great day. Thank you. Sweet.